Did you edit X-Men Gold? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was there. I was there. Yeah. Um, um, well, you know, God bless. <laughs> <laughs> X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Chris Robinson, former editor at Marvel, including on the X-Line for some time. Now a writer and editor at large, also developing a creator-owned line at Tapas, the storytelling app. He has a crowdfunded project currently going on on Zoop called Corner Man, and we'll give him a chance to talk about that after we talk a little bit about Remy Le Beau, the charming gambit. Uh, Chris, how are you today? I'm fantastic. I'm so glad uh, that everyone, uh, that you survived the, uh, the hurricane of on the Northeast uh, at the moment, and <laughs> yeah, we rescheduled because we were supposed to record yesterday on the 22nd. And quite honestly, the rain was so loud that I just emailed Chris. I was like, can we move this? Because it's really loud. Outside. Absolutely. And that's not a problem we have in, in, uh, in L.A. There's never any rain. No. Ever, so, yeah. It's the quakes that you got to watch out for. <laughs> right. <out there. laughs> My bicoastal existence at this point is sort of like, which climate change results am I more afraid of? Hurricanes <laughs> and floods or yeah. earthquakes and wildfires? And it's just sort of like a pick your poison, right? Sure. Well, thank you so much for being accommodating with your schedule and for coming on to be my guest. Gambit is a character that I have had some trouble finding the right guest for. Mm. I had someone lined up early on, but then they were worried that they don't have the sort of deep encyclopedic kind of knowledge that a lot of my guests have. And I was like, that's fine, but I get it. This show can be intimidating. It's a lot of reading. It's a lot of research. Whenever anybody backs out, I'm like, I 100% get it. <laughs> My thing, as I've said on this podcast many times, is I am essentially gambivalent. He is not a character <laughs> I've ever thought that much about. In the 90s, I found him annoying. Sure. My dad is a collector, so I grew up reading the 70s and 80s stuff primarily. And the 90s stuff that was coming out, in reality, when I was a kid, just didn't grab me as much. Mm -hmm. Gambit, to me, sort of represented that 90s X-Men that I didn't like as much. It was sort of, okay, it's the Gambit show now, and I don't quite get this character. I also just found his relationship with Rogue really melodramatic in a way I didn't find fun. So it just was not, sure. they were just never my, my thing in the 90s. But I'm excited to give him a fair shake. I haven't read as much Gambit material as I have for some other characters because he has actually had a lot of solo adventures in a way that X-Men don't usually do. This is true. So I'm excited to talk to a Gambit fan, dig into him a little bit, give him a fair shake. I think my role in this episode is mostly going to be doing a terrible Gambit voice <laughs> that... I will apologize for in advance to the two Cajun listeners I'm currently aware of. I'm sure there are more of you out there. The Cajun accent is really hard to do, so I'm yeah, not going to try. I was talking to one of the Cajun listeners in the Discord. They're like, that accent is so bad. And I was like, okay, but is it better or worse than the one that's actually written on the page in Marvel Comics? They're like, oh, it's better than that. So I was like, okay, then I'm <laughs> ahead of the game. 
first, Chris, I'd love to talk about your origin story with the X-Men, your history with this franchise. Obviously, you worked on this franchise for some time, but I'd love to hear about your entry into it and then about your work at Marvel. Absolutely. Um, Well, I'm going to surprise probably some people when when I say that, like, I didn't I didn't start the job as an X-Men fan. I didn't didn't even start in the X-Office. I started um, working in, like, Avengers satellite stuff like Hulk and Mm -hmm. Black Panther and things like that. But I eventually get moved into the X-Office. And then once you're there, you're an (laughs) X-Fan. Like, there's no there's no (laughs) avoiding it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of fans, especially at that time that you were editing in that office, were worried that editorial were not <laughs> excellent fans. <laughs> but I think that that was a more uh, more high up than editorial, perhaps. Sure. Yeah. It was. Uh, it, I I did. I definitely did the um, less favored reboots for a few years. But, you know, all that stuff leads to the stuff that everyone loves now. It's like you can't absolutely really change any of it because it would change everything, right? That's no, like it wouldn't work. The whole thing. My understanding also is that you developed Children of the Atom with Vita Ayala mm-hmm. before leaving. Mm-hmm. I just have to tell you, I loved that book. I'm a huge, huge fan. So happy to hear that. I mean, I'm a big Vita Ayala fan generally. But Me too. I thought that book was so strong. It's a really difficult concept i think to pull off mm-hmm. i was saying on twitter i think a lot of white x-men fans get uncomfortable reading that book because a lot of us have tendencies like cyclops last that we need to examine yeah i think that's the point of the book so i think it's a great success you know what i mean yeah absolutely and i think carmen is a character with a ton of potential for the future and i think it's really cool that a black editor and a black writer got to put this project together in X-Men comics because I can't think of a time that's literally ever happened before. Uh, I would I would venture to say never. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. Yeah, Children of the Atom was definitely a baby of mine that uh, you know I didn't get to see all the way through, unfortunately. But like. Vita killed it. Vita's like, you know, a preeminent writer, you know, of, of the era. Period. Period, totally. Alive today, I think. So uh, it was in good hands. Uh, it, it was also different because I think this thing that you're describing where it was like, you know, um, kind of a rough read for a certain strain of fan. I think, uh, you know, my involvement with a longer issue count, you know what I mean? It would have been. Ah, gotcha different it was supposed to be it was supposed to be sort of like a long play thing but obviously things changed drastically uh you know thanks to covid yeah i think it worked really well as a mini honestly and i think it teed up the characters to then appear other places if they make sense and so obviously covid did that to a lot of books but Mm -hmm. i don't think it was harmed by the truncation yeah i mean you know covid changed pretty much everything like I, I in the world right <laughs> yeah I don't uh I, I probably don't leave if COVID doesn't happen so right it, it was a big it was a big change in my life how about that yeah you know? yeah I would imagine so you became an X-Men fan in the office what drew mm-hmm. you to Gambit specifically as a character I first came upon Gambit like you know, probably everyone in our in our you know age zone, which is like through the show, through the '90s show. Mm-hmm. He's like a 14 year old boy's like dream, right? So like he's very cool <laughs> at uh, there, right? But like in terms of like why we picked him for the show, I mean, 
you know, I'm going to get let you in on some sausage making here, but like working at Marvel, and I'm sure the same is similar for DC, but like you sort of start to dissuade yourself of like what you like and what you don't like. And, and you start thinking of it in like, like, oh, like this, this character has lots of fans. Like, like you commented earlier, for whatever reason, Gambit has had a lot of solo series. Yeah. And not every X-Man can support a solo series. No. So the fact that he's able to do that and... You know, we can, I'm sure we'll get into how successful those solo series were, but like just that alone is like so impressive. So, so part of the reason why I threw him out to, to discuss is because I want people to, <laughs> to be interested in, in the episodes, you know, that we're doing right now. So, oh, of course. I really love the Niciesa solo. Sure. That one I think is really good. But I love it because it has a lot of cool female characters in it. Like, that's the better yeah. way to drag me. Like, it's all about Kandra and Fontanelle and the Black Womb, who is one of my favorite obscure Marvel villains. I would love for her to have a scary return sometime. <laughs> I mean, she's out there and all she's ever wanted is a young body. So I feel like Krakoa would appeal Ooh. to her. Can you imagine Absolutely. having to hang out with Amanda Mueller, like at the Green Lagoon? That would be so horrible. <laughs> I've also, I read a long time ago and then again for this podcast, The Wolverine and Gambit, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale, sure. Victims, because the Ladies Mastermind episode of this podcast is shockingly popular given how oh. not major those characters are. Yeah. But it's a pretty funny episode. That mini I'm not crazy about because I feel like it's one of the many times that Gambit gets a retcon fridged girlfriend like mm -hmm. there's just a lot of them and i'm like okay it's enough but that's that's sort of a problem across his whole yeah bibliography biography like it's it's very samey you know like hitting the same notes like over and over and over again yeah and that's probably why you know he starts to, his, his star starts to fall in the in the I mid so. thoughts you know i think it's also I mean, I think he and Jubilee are the two characters who are huge in the 90s and then just get dropped, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because there was this perception that they were of that time. Like right. That they are dated characters in the same way that Longshot and Dazzler get dropped in the transition from the 80s to the 90s. Yeah. Which I thought was a shame then, too. I think Dazzler's great. Mm -hmm. And Longshot's also great. Longshot, though, was very dated. and It was probably good to let him go away for a while because now when he comes back, it's like a fun retro right. thing as opposed to this is the fashion from three years ago. <laughs> but... I've said many times that I think the only X-Men who can really carry solos are Wolverine and Storm, but Gambit is in the middle there. I think it just takes a writer with a plan, you know? And I mean, that's sure. true of any book, but I think he's one where, especially once he and Rogue became such an indelible pair that you couldn't really split up, mm -hmm. if you're going to do solo Gambit, especially now that he's married and he can't just be flirting with everyone you have to kind of figure out what the role for him is. But I think that he is, on some level, Marvel's closest thing to, like, a Nightwing-type character. Oh, yeah? Interesting. Not in the sense of, like, a sidekick who rises up. There's right. other characters who are that. 
but in the sense of this is the acrobatic cat burglary guy. Like he's sort mm-hmm. of like a boy cat woman, right? I mean, really what he is is Marvel's closest answer to cat woman, but I'm thinking about male yeah. heroes specifically. Catwoman's a good example though. I think that's pretty good. is a character who should be approached like Catwoman if you're doing a solo. It's like, what is a Catwoman solo about? She can't just steal stuff. Like there has to be a plot, right? Sure. That's, I think, his dilemma. Whereas I think that Wolverine and Storm, although they've just never gone there with Storm really for whatever reason. I mean, there are lots of reasons that are obvious but those two characters I think you can just sort of throw into a million situations and it makes sense that they're there and they can just sort of be superheroes in that Batman or Superman way where you can do a detective story with Wolverine you can do an Avengers story with Wolverine you Mm -hmm. can do all kinds of stuff Storm similarly you can do a like weird magical the natural world storyline with her you can also do a very gritty like she was a thief on the streets storyline with her she can do a lot of different stuff yeah Gambit kind of only has the one thing, though. I agree. Like, he is sort of a samey character sometimes, which is why I really like the new avenues that have opened up for him in Teeny's Excalibur. You know, it's funny because he's married to Rogue, but he's now sort of the rogue of their D&D party in Otherworld, which I think is a fun new scenario for him to be in, even if he's using some of the same skills. So what is it about him that draws you in as an adult? I mean, obviously, yeah, the 14-year-old boy, especially 14-year-old straight boys, in my experience, encounter Gambit. He is a total, you know, wish-fulfillment, fun factor kind of character. Yeah, I I think, um, you know, it's it's the look, right? In comics, if you get the look right, people will forgive a lot. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It is notable that he's one of the only characters in the X-Men, there's, there's a few of them, like Havoc is another one, where mm-hmm. no matter how many new costumes they get put in, they always end up back in their original costume. Absolutely. Jubilee, actually, is another one. They mm-hmm. can't get her out of that yellow trench coat because that's Jubilee. You look at her and you're like, there she is. Yeah. Gambit, especially given the pink color scheme, which is rare for a male superhero, mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that it's so iconic that he just sort of always goes back to it. It helps that he's like, you know... Uh, annoyingly masculine in every other sense. Like a womanizer. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But what I think is interesting about him, and this is why I sort of compared him to Nightwing, is like there is a femininity also to the character. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, he has a lot of female fans. Absolutely. And not just as like a sex object, but also as a point of identification. He has a lot of lesbian fans, actually, which I found interesting. Hmm. But in general, I think... His fan base that I've encountered in the world has been mostly either men who encountered the character from the cartoon when they were kids and were like, this is the coolest guy in the world, or women for whom he was this very fascinating romantic figure Mm -hmm. in the sense of like romance, the genre. When Cass Morris was on for the Rogue episode, she talked about how the reason she loves Rogue and Remy is that they're sort of the romance novel trope of like the rake and the girl who redeems him, but taken to this incredibly heightened superhero level where not only is he a bad boy who (laughs) loves sex, who is a thief and needs to be redeemed, but also he has to be so redeemed and pure because so pure and good that he's willing to be with her even though he can't touch her physically because literally he will die. So there is a very heightened melodrama to it that she found very appealing. Mm -hmm. I found it annoying. (laughs) 
and there are lots of melodrama romance plots in the X-Men that I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. I mean, Madeline Pryor is one of my favorite characters ever in a comic book. So obviously I'm no stranger to like relationship drama being a driver for a character. I think my thing with Rogue <laughs> and Gambit was just that Rogue used to be so fun in the 80s. She was like, you know, she was a traumatized person with a lot of problems, but she was the good time character. Like you totally. have a rollicking good time with Rogue. And the cartoon, I think, kind of maintained that. But the 90s comics, especially sort of the Love Dell stuff, I felt like she just kind of got depressed because mm-hmm. her relationship with Gambit was so terrible. And I was just sort of like, I don't want to read depressed Rogue. But yeah. you know, sometimes you have to put the character through something to get them somewhere else. And I'm happy with where Rogue is now, certainly. So the long journey definitely, I guess, was worth it. Sure. Yeah, I think I think there, you know, it's sort of like of of the great melodrama relationships in X-Men, Gambit and Rogue is probably the most like mainstream, you know what I mean? Like we we we've already like this is well trodden ground. Mm-hmm. At that that the other ones are a little bit weirder or a little bit more fantastical. So this one being sort of like you know, romance novel cover, you know what I mean? Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. I'm, and at this you know. point, they've been together on page collectively year wise longer than Scott and Jean ever have been. Right. You know? So it's just like one of those things where at a certain point, like if you look at the 90s, Scott and Jean, Warren and Betsy, and Rogue and Remy are sort of the three couples because like Storm and Forge break up pretty quickly. Right. And those are sort of the three couples that we follow through the 90s. Mm-hmm. Of those pairs, Warren and Betsy break up in 99 or 2000 ish and haven't been really together since outside of the Remender Uncanny X Force right. where it's complicated. Mm-hmm. And Scott and Jean obviously you know, she was dead for 15 years. And before that, they also sort of broke up. I mean, they broke up after she died. It's complicated. Don't worry about it. The point is, (laughs) you get what I'm saying, which is that of all these characters, Rogue and Gambit are the most enduring couple. They also were on again, off again a lot, though. She has her Joseph moment. Then in Mike Carey's Mm -hmm. run, she has her Magneto moment for real. And I liked that because Gambit has a good scene with her in that where... She's like, are you upset that I'm seeing Magneto? And he's like, no, sure, you need to see if that is what you want. And I will always be here waiting when you are ready for us to be together. So, you know, like it was a mature (laughs) moment from him versus his reaction to Joseph in the 90s where he was very jealous and upset about it. And I do like them together now. I think that Mr. and Mrs. X was cute. I really liked how Teeny wrote them in Excalibur. Rogue has now left that book, but I'm really enjoying the glimpses of their marriage that we're now getting in Jerry Duggan's X-Men book when he pops over to see her at the treehouse. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that status quo has ended up really good for both of them. I was just resistant to it, I think, yeah. initially. He's honestly, and I know we spent a while talking about his uh, great line of uh, solo minis, but like in my reading, my rereading of, of a lot of his past work, <laughs> Gambit is really best as a as a supporting character, I think. Yeah. He comes in, you know, with a little, uh, you know, Susan, a little, you know, uh, a, a little energy on the side and you know, you you don't have to do the like emotional labor to like make make it really count. You know what I mean? Because that could be elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, the Marjorie X twenty three series, yeah, where he has a, a sort of like a big brother role in that book. Mm-hmm. It's like there you go. That's that's that was probably not to not to you know take a peg out of Clayman's uh, Gambit series, but like in that in that era, I think that was mo- a more successful usage probably of his 
you know, him for a new era rather than sort of like redoing like, oh, he's a, he's a thief. You know what I mean? So Yeah. I mean, I love particularly in this era that exact thing, which is that his role on the Excalibur team, and this is even clearer now that Rogue has left mm -hmm. and he doesn't have to have scenes where he's like debriefing with Rogue and can be talking to other characters instead. He really is everyone's like Uncle Gambit. Right. That's the quality that he sort of has. There's a great moment in a recent issue of Excalibur where he supercharges a train in other worlds with his power and gets it activated and like they're all, you know, suddenly on like a train robbery. And Betsy, who has been going through it for this whole book, yeah. grins with teeth, super huge, for only the second time in the entire book. The first time was when she was dancing with Rachel at the gala, just putting it out there. The <laughs> second time is this moment on the train, and she's just like, Remy LeBeau, you are a crazy man. And he's like, you love it, you too, it's the Gambit Express. And it's just like a really <laughs> sweet moment where he just brings her joy and he does that for characters a lot. And that's the role that I think he really is meant to now be in. He's not a class clown in the way that someone like Iceman is. Definitely. Yeah. But he's a character who brings levity to a situation. And as a mature guy who's like gotten his yayas out, is not chasing skirts anymore, is happily married. Now that's really a fun role for him to be in. It's yeah. like fun uncle, you know, especially now that he and Rogue have had that conversation that Teeny wrote where Rogue tells him she doesn't think that she wants to have children. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I'm okay with that as long as we all together, like, you know, et cetera. <laughs> I mean, I relate to this, settling into like being the fun uncle. That's my plan. My sister hasn't had kids yet. No pressure, Katie, if you're listening. But <laughs> my plan is to, you know, just show up and be the fun uncle, breeze in, have a cool gift, make somebody laugh and then leave again and not have to deal with it. <laughs> and that, I think, is sort of Gambit's whole vibe, right? Like when he dips in and out of the X-Men franchise, it's usually like, oh, no, I have to go deal with the Assassin's Guild again. Goodbye. Farewell, my friends. Salut. I will see you later. And then he just shows up when he, like, feels like it's time to be back. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, better. it's better in small doses. Maybe that's why a lot of the minis are, 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 are the better, the, you know, I don't know, more successful minis, I guess is the way to term it, is, are, are on the shorter side. Not that his, like, ongoings have, like, long, long runs, but, like, they do get into the, like, you know, 12 plus, you know, 15 episode, uh, 15 issue range. And that's like, you know, especially if they're, uh, you know, not bringing new stuff to the table, you know, and that's, and that's probably, I would say, you know, why you're having such a great time with the Excalibur stuff, because it's bringing new to the table. And that was not mm -hmm. something that the X-Men were for, as a franchise, like focused on for, for a long period of time. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know. No, I agree. Yeah. Well, before we get into your favorite Gambit stories, I think it might be a good idea just because this character does have a long history and is someone who I think most people are more familiar with from that cartoon or just from general pop culture osmosis. I think that now would be a great moment for us to just jump into the Cerebro character file where I will take you through Gambit's full publication history from Chris Claremont up through Teeny Howard and tell you all of the stuff he got up to that you need to worry about and the stuff that you don't need to worry about. Then we will come back for more with Chris Robinson. We will talk about his favorite Gambit storylines. Then we will answer questions from listeners like you. And then we will get into Chris's current work. Stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. X-Men. X-Men. 
Remy Etienne LeBeau, better known by the codename Gambit, was Chris Claremont's last addition to the X-Men team in his classic 16-year run. A mysterious master thief from New Orleans, Remy has the power to supercharge inanimate objects, turning their potential energy into explosive kinetic energy. He typically uses playing cards to do this as a stylish gimmick. A breakout character of the 90s after Claremont's departure, Gambit has starred in several solo titles, unusual for an X-Men character, and became iconic in the franchise thanks to his prominent role in the 90s animated series. His star has dimmed somewhat in the 21st century, with most of his plots focused around his longtime love interest and now wife, Rogue. Created by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee, Remy has a brief appearance in July 1990's Uncanny X-Men Annual before making his first full appearance the following month in Uncanny X-Men 266. While looking to steal some art in Cairo, Illinois, he comes across a young teenage thief with incredible skill. Actually, the X-Men's leader, Aurora Monroe, a.k.a. Storm, regressed in age to about 12 by the supervillain Nanny. Storm has no memories of her time with the X-Men, remembering only her life as a pickpocket on the streets of the other Cairo. You know, the original one, in Egypt. Remy decides to protect the girl, who is being pursued by minions of the Shadow King. This all takes place during the Siege Perilous era when the X-Men have been split apart. So nobody's looking for Storm, especially because Nanny faked her death in the outback with a lifelike dummy. After they fight up the Shadow King's hounds, Remy and Aurora set up shop in New Orleans and become righteous thieves in the vein of Robin Hood, remaining there until Nanny discovers them. During that battle, Aurora regains her memories of being an X-Man and brings Remy with her as she begins traveling to find them. Eventually, they meet up with Banshee and Forge, and a new team of X-Men forms leading into the franchise-wide event Extinction Agenda, in which Aurora is restored to physical adulthood by Genosian experiments. After that event and the Muir Island saga, the X-Men and X-Factor teams reunite as one team, split into two squads, the blue team led by Cyclops and the gold team led by Storm. Despite his history with Storm, Remy is assigned to the blue team and becomes a regular cast member in the new adjectiveless X-Men title. Shortly thereafter, Chris Claremont leaves the franchise after 16 years, and after some writing by Jim Lee, the book is taken over by Fabian Niciesa. Early in his time with the X-Men, Remy refuses to reveal anything about his past or even his real name. Bits and pieces are revealed to the reader over time. For instance, we learn that he has a potentially romantic past with the X-Men's enemy Joanna Cargill, aka Frenzy, now one of Magneto's acolytes. His romantic future is what interests him more, however. He's immediately taken with his new teammate, Rogue, and eventually convinces her to go out with him despite her inability to touch anyone without absorbing their life force and mind. Their growing relationship is swiftly complicated by two unexpected developments on the same day. First, the newest member of the X-Men, a time-traveling cop from the future named Bishop, is shocked to recognize Gambit, whom he calls LeBeau. Apparently, in Bishop's future, the X-Men were murdered after being betrayed by one of their own. The only person who saw the massacre and survived was an elderly man named LeBeau, called The Witness. Remy's annoyed because he hasn't told the X-Men his real name yet, and also annoyed because Bishop is now convinced he's the one who will inevitably betray the team. He's further annoyed when Belladonna Boudreau, leader of the Assassin's Guild of New Orleans, promptly arrives at the mansion demanding his assistance, and informing all present, including Rogue, that she is Remy's wife. It turns out Remy was raised by the Thieves Guild, a rival organization that fights with the Assassin's Guild for control of the New Orleans underworld, and has done so for centuries. A marriage between him and Belladonna was arranged to bring peace. The arrangement worked, but at the wedding, Belladonna's brother Julien objected and challenged Remy to a duel to the death. Remy won, apparently slaying Julien, and was exiled from New Orleans to preserve the delicate new peace. In the present, the X-Men team up with Ghost Rider to help Belladonna save the guilds from an invasion by the aliens called the Brood. While Remy and Belladonna settle their issue, she's apparently killed in the conflict. 
Rogue isn't sure how to feel about any of this, but given that Belladonna is now deceased, she and Rennie resume dating, even though she's afraid her powers will hurt him. He assures her that his feelings for her go beyond physical lust, and he is content without sex. This leads into a four-issue Gambit solo miniseries by Howard Mackey and Lee Weeks, in which Remy's adopted brother Henri arrives to tell Remy that Belladonna and her brother Julien are alive, and the Assassin's Guild is up to no good. Henri is murdered by assassins working for Julien, and Remy and Rogue travel to New Orleans to see what the hell is going on. Belladonna turns out to be in a coma, and her father wants Remy to retrieve the Elixir of Life, which the guild leaders use to become functionally immortal. The guilds have a pact with the ancient being Kandra, actually one of the immortal mutants called Externals, who provides them with the elixir. But it's the Thieves' Guild's turn to use it. Honestly, don't worry about this guild stuff. It's all super confusing. Remy basically tells Kandra to fuck off, and after some misadventures, he manages to get a little bit of the elixir to Belladonna. This wakes her from her coma, but without her memories, because Rogue touched her by accident and absorbed them. Realizing that Kandra is a jerk, the guilds decide to stop bargaining with her at all. Back in New York, Rogue is freaked out about the whole situation. Belladonna being alive feels like a complication in her relationship, and now she has memories she absorbed from Belladonna, including memories of physical intimacy with Remy, which Rogue knows she herself can never have. She even starts repeating things to him that Belladonna had said in the past, which freaks Remy out. Around the same time, the villain Sabretooth, who's being held captive at the mansion in the hopes that Professor Xavier can cure his psychopathic bloodlust, reveals that he and Remy have a past of their own. Sabretooth delights in telling Rogue about a time Remy seduced a young woman in Paris in the hopes of stealing a jewel in her possession. Sabretooth captured the girl, Genevieve, and forced Remy to choose to save either her or his brother Henri. Remy chose his brother, allowing Genevieve to die. The story leaves Rogue shaken as she realizes Remy's past is darker than she had imagined. Then comes the Rogue miniseries by Howard Mackey and Mike Waringo, where Belladonna decides to get revenge on Rogue for stealing her memories. She kidnaps a comatose young man named Cody, Rogue's first love, who's been in a vegetative state since Rogue nearly killed him with a kiss as a teenager. Rogue and Remy tangle with Belladonna and Kandra, which helps bond them further. Back at the mansion, another ah, I know this guy moment happens when the assassin Yukio, Wolverine's close associate, and Storm's close associate, wink wink, teams up with Storm and Gambit to fight the phalanx. Yukio tells Aurora that Remy's a bad guy and she should be wary of him. Rogue and Remy continue to date, and in advance of the Age of Apocalypse reality warp, they impulsively kiss, believing the world is ending. When the world returns to normal after AOA concludes, with the book now written by Scott Lobdell, Rogue finds herself absorbing Remy's memories while Remy's left in a coma. Rogue flees, traumatized both by the reminder of what happened to Cody and also by a memory she felt somewhere in Remy's psyche when they connected. She isn't sure what it is, but she knows it's bad. After he wakes up, Remy follows her to Seattle, where she demands to know what it is he's hiding. He won't answer, but he offers to let her absorb his mind again if she wants to see the memories in detail. Frustrated, Rogue leaves both Remy and the X-Men. And then the villain Mr. Sinister arrives, telling Remy to remember who he really is at the end of the day. It's worth mentioning here that in Chris Claremont's original conception of both characters, Gambit and Mr. Sinister were intended to be the psychic projections of a permanently stunted mutant child, a bully named Nathan who had tormented Cyclops at the orphanage where they both grew up. Gambit was therefore conceived as a child's idea of the perfect dashing hero, and Mr. Sinister conceived as a child's idea of the perfect terrifying villain. This plot obviously did not survive Claremont's departure from the franchise, but the connection between the two characters was always under the surface, and that's what is being teased out here now, though obviously in a very different way. Anyway, this is when Bishop and Gambit start to make peace, because it turns out the big traitor Bishop was looking for is actually Onslaught! Do not 
worry about that either. The key thing for Gambit during the Onslaught story is that Rogue comes back to the X-Men with her new love interest, Joseph, who is an apparently de-aged Magneto with amnesia. Rogue and Remy end up getting back together, though, after a mission in outer space where he saves her life during a fight with the Phalanx. On their way back, their spaceship crashes in the Savage Land in Antarctica, where Magneto's old robot Nanny, not the same Nanny as the Nanny from earlier in this character file and now in Hellions, different Nanny, a robot Nanny from the 70s, don't worry about it, imprisons them and negates their powers. Rogue and Remy, thinking they might die, decide to have sex for the first time while her powers are dampened. It's Rogue's first time with anyone, and the experience is very meaningful for her. The next day, Remy decides to face up to his past and allows some old criminal contacts he's encountered on the way to take him into custody. They bring him to a trial conducted by Magneto in disguise as Eric the Red. Do not worry about that. This is where we finally learn Remy's dark secret. When his powers were out of control as a young man, he went to Mr. Sinister for help. Sinister performed a brain surgery that fixed the problem, leaving Remy in debt to the supervillain. Remy served him for a while as an enforcer, but eventually decided to quit, only willing to do one more job for the debt to be considered paid. Sinister's request was that Remy bring together a group of mutant mercenaries. Remy did so, forming the Marauders, including his old enemy Sabretooth and his old friend John Greycrow, aka Scalpunter. Remy wasn't aware of why Sinister had needed this team and was aghast when the Marauders began the Mutant Massacre, a genocide of the Morlocks who lived in the tunnels beneath Manhattan. Knowing he'd be killed if he tried to fight all the Marauders, Remy grabbed one Morlock child, a girl named Sarah, and ran away from the carnage with her. Through various interdimensional plot contrivances, that girl would age into the character Marrow. The X-Men are disgusted to learn Remy helped orchestrate the mutant massacre, whatever his intentions, and Rogue is particularly repulsed after she absorbs Remy's memories again to verify the allegations. She flies him out into the frozen wastes of Antarctica and leaves him there to die. Around this time, there is a second Gambit solo miniseries, and I am just going to be real with you, I've never read it. I'm going to say don't worry about it. I glanced at a summary just now on the Marvel Universe Appendix, which is a great website, and it seems like it might be kind of fun. He fights a demon, there are angels, but it definitely looks like a dwarf. Remy turns up alive somehow in San Francisco, and though he doesn't have any interest in returning to the X-Men, a chance encounter with Storm helps convince him that he should try to resolve things with Rogue. Rogue feels guilty for leaving Remy behind in Antarctica, and he comforts her by explaining that she was just channeling his own self-loathing after temporarily absorbing his psyche. Rogue admits she still loves Remy, but Remy keeps things cool, because the energy being who saved his life in Antarctica is in love with him now and is threatening to kill Rogue if he approaches her romantically again. Truly, do not worry about this. Remy returns to the X-Men, but continues working for a mysterious new employer, a man called the New Sun, who returned Remy to civilization in Antarctica in exchange for his help stealing machinery the High Evolutionary had left behind in the Savage Land. The New Sun believes the world is ending soon and says he plans to create a new world for humanity to survive. This all leads into a 25-issue Gambit solo series written by Fabian Niciesa, where he steals lots of shit for the New Sun. This series also gives us more of Remy's backstory with the Thieves' Guild. Abandoned as an infant, perhaps due to his strange eyes with red irises and black sclera, he was discovered by the ancient and secretive guild and hailed as Le Diable Blanc, the White Devil, a figure in both the prophecies of their future and accounts of their past. The leader of the guild, Jean-Luc Lebeau, had the boy trained by a thief called Fagin, presumably a reference to Fagin the Jew from Oliver Twist. As a child, Remy first met Belladonna Boudreau, heiress to the Assassin's Guild, and over the years, they fell in love. When he was 10 years old, Remy attempted to pickpocket Jean-Luc Lebeau on the street, and Lebeau adopted the child as his own. A few years later, the two rival guild leaders then arranged for Remy and Belladonna to marry to establish peace, and the kids agreed to go through with it when they turned 18. 
Back in the present, Moira McTaggart tries to figure out why Gambit's powers are going haywire. It's because of that energy being. Remember her? Again, don't worry about it. But Remy takes the opportunity to steal some data from Moira on behalf of the new son. Starting to suspect his employer is up to no good, Remy tries to investigate him, but winds up investigating himself by a dream-manipulating telepath called Fontanelle, another one of the new son's operatives. Jean-Luc summons his son to New Orleans to warn him about Fontenelle, and there Remy learns the guilds are in trouble because Kandra died. She'll get better, don't worry about it. They always do, they're externals. Meanwhile, back in X-Men, Remy helps Marrow turn into Hot Marrow. Do not worry about this. Revisit the episode on Marrow if you need to know. The Solo series gives us more flashbacks. We see a teenage Remy's first meeting with Kandra, who strangely claims to have met him before. And in the present, in New Orleans, Remy tangles with a child trafficker he met during that mission long ago, in which his cousin Etienne was killed. In a 1999 Gambit Annual by Niciesa and Walter McDaniel, the plot with the green ghost energy being lady gets resolved. She has a tragic backstory and she dies at the end of the story, I guess. Again, not super clear, not something to worry about. Remy continues to appear simultaneously in both Uncanny X-Men and his own solo title. When Xavier disbands the X-Men to isolate a traitor in their midst, Remy helps out by stealing a device from Mr. Sinister. This technology helps the X-Men discover that Wolverine, who has just been murdered, is actually a Skrull imposter. The real Wolverine has become Apocalypse's new horseman of death. And honestly, don't worry about it. Back in the solo series, Remy is sent by his father to steal a magical jewel called the Momentary Princess. It turns out to be a jewel that travels through time, sent into the past by The Witness, the elderly version of Remy from Bishop's Future. Remy fails to retrieve the jewel, but ends up finding another means of time travel because, oh yeah, this is a time travel story. Jean-Luc and the guild's healer, the witch Tante Maddie, finally let Remy in on the secret of Le Diable Blanc. It turns out that a time-traveling adult Remy saved both Jean-Luc and Tante Maddie nearly a hundred years earlier during a conflict with Kandra. They show him late 19th century photographs to prove it. Traveling back in time to 1891, alongside another new sun operative, the shapeshifter called Courier, Remy meets Kandra, who is worried about the rise of her fellow external apocalypse. Kandra wants Mr. Sinister's help in fighting apocalypse off, and Remy agrees to help her locate him. Sinister's now living in New York as an OBGYN, yikes, under the alias Dr. Milbury. Courier shapeshifts into a woman to schedule an appointment with Milbury, and ends up stuck in a female form permanently in a story that's honestly very interesting for the time, but I really don't feel equipped to tell you whether or not it's a good trans-adjacent storyline. Worth a read, though, would be interested in transmitter takes on it. Anyway, Remy tracks down Milbury himself with the help of Amanda Mueller, the woman the press call the Black Womb, because she is famous for her many miscarriages and stillbirths and was accused of inducing them intentionally. Remy bargains with Sinister to save Courier, and they end up working together to defeat Kandra. Though he's stuck in the past, Remy is able to return himself and Courier to the present by having Essex perform more brain surgery on him to reverse the surgery he had as a teenager. How does greater control over potential kinetic energy help him travel in time? Don't worry about it. He and Rogue briefly get back together because his new powers let him make an energy field around his body that allows them to touch, but they still have a ton of relationship problems and end up breaking up again. His new powers quickly start going out of control, and then he's named leader of the Thieves' Guild when his father retires. Then the new son abruptly decides to have Remy killed and puts out a hit on him. Remy ends up fighting off a series of assassins, including Bullseye, the daredevil enemy, and his ex-wife, Belladonna, and he and Belladonna end up having a meeting of the minds. As the new guild leaders, they decide to figure out the old prophecies and make peace between the rival guilds, merging them into a unified guild. In the 2000 Gambit Annual, the final conflict with the new son reveals he's actually a version of Remy from an alternate reality, and he's been pushing Remy to show him the full scope of his powers. 
Remy and Fontanelle then try to figure out what exactly the new son's whole game plan was, and honestly, it's very confusing and you don't need to worry about it. Fontanelle is the Black Womb's daughter, by the way. Couldn't figure out where to slot that in. Anyway, during Chris Claremont's return to the X-Men in the Revolution relaunch, Remy becomes an X-Men field leader. The X-Men end up fighting intergalactic slavers called the Crimson Pirates, and Remy apparently betrays the team to join the pirates. Rogue is leading the other X-Men team in this period, and she figures out Remy is just scamming the slavers. They then get back together again. Back in the Gambit solo series, the new son shows up again and reveals that he's actually the new son, S-U-N, instead of son, S-O-N. He takes Remy to his own Earth, a ruin, and explains that the prophecies of the guilds that will supposedly create heaven on Earth actually literally bring heaven to Earth, releasing energy that killed everyone else on the planet. The new son has observed that this will happen in every reality, so he's decided to kill his Earth-616 self to prevent it from coming to pass. Remy burns out his enhanced powers to kill the new son, and you never have to think about any of this ever again. After learning about Destiny's diaries, which supposedly reveal the future of mutant kind, Rogue accompanies Storm as she breaks away from Xavier to form the Extreme X-Men and seek the diaries. As her own powers are now out of control, don't worry about it, Rogue asks Remy to stay away from her. Gambit and Bishop have a duo miniseries here, and I simply refuse to talk about it. Strife is involved? It's fully insane. Remy turns up in Extreme X-Men while stealing a powerful jewel from the villain Vargas, who you don't have to worry about. After a misunderstanding compounded by the wicked wiles of Lady Mastermind, Remy joins up with the team and ends up battling Vargas. Rogue tries to save Remy from being killed by Vargas, who had earlier killed their teammate Betsy Braddock, aka Psylocke, and Vargas ends up impaling both of them with a sword after Rogue's powers get negated by an energy beam. Remy is dying, but Jean Grey helps Rogue follow his spirit telepathically and convince him to return with her. They both recover, but their powers are apparently gone due to Vargas's whatever, so they retire from the X-Men to live in California as a regular couple. At the end of Extreme X-Men, Remy and Rogue help the team fight Elias Bogan, don't worry about it, and Remy's powers are reactivated with the help of a jumpstart from Sage, don't worry about that either. They then land smack dab in Chuck Austin Hell as part of a new X-Men field team led by Havoc. Rogue's powers also come back around this time, so they can't be intimate anymore and their relationship begins to suffer. An accident in battle ends up leaving Gambit blind, possibly forever. Rogue becomes overprotective and Remy is frustrated. He still helps her figure out the secrets of her biological family in a Rogue miniseries that I absolutely hate. Around this time, he maybe manifests a precognitive secondary mutation, but nobody but Chuck Austin ever dealt with it again, so don't worry about it. Anyway, the healer Elixir and another jumpstart from Sage manage to restore Remy's eyesight, and then Peter Milligan takes over the book. Remy and Rogue continue to have relationship problems, and in a fourth Gambit solo series that I have absolutely never read, Gambit ends up cheating on her. The incident's caught on tape, but Remy manages to retrieve the video before it can be sent to Rogue. Back in the Milligan run, Remy's now training a squad of students and doing it very badly. His newest student, a sexy girl named Fox, spends all her time trying to seduce him, and Rogue learns about her when Rogue and Remy do telepathic sex therapy with Emma Frost. This run is totally insane, but like overall the fun kind of insane, I think. Fox turns out to be Mystique, Rogue's adoptive mother, in disguise. She's trying to break them up because she thinks Remy isn't good enough for Rogue. Then she joins the X-Men. It's wild. After the decimation, in which all but about 200 mutants worldwide are depowered, Remy is one of the rare mutants to retain his gifts. Unfortunately, Apocalypse then attacks, and Remy decides the best way to protect his friends is to submit to Apocalypse, become one of his horsemen, and work against him from the inside. This obviously does not work, as the new death persona Apocalypse imprints in Gambit's mind, along with a truly wild physical transformation with jet black skin and chalk white hair, also controls Remy's thoughts, and he almost kills Rogue in battle. Eventually, Remy flees to a monastery in Asia to try to deprogram himself. 
Mr. Sinister arrives and heals him, but insists Remy join the roster of his new marauders. This leads into the franchise-wide event, Messiah Complex, in which Remy, obviously, betrays the marauders and helps the X-Men. He ends up destroying Destiny's diaries with his powers rather than allow them to fall into Sinister's hands. Mystique, who betrayed the X-Men to join the Marauders, because, duh, also betrays Sinister, because, duh, and manages to heal Rogue, who's dying due to unrelated events. Don't worry about it. Remy is happy about that, but he understands when Rogue tells him she needs some space. He turns up again in Mike Carey's X-Men Legacy, which spins out of Messiah Complex, where he rescues an amnesiac Professor Xavier from an evil scheme of Mr. Sinister's. This involves a big fight with Amanda Mueller, the Black Womb, who has survived to the present as a terrifying immortal Crypt Keeper-looking lady in a black leather corset because Mike Carey always does the reading, and I love that about him. Remy lets Rogue use him as a guinea pig when she's testing her newfound control over her powers and is pleased when she touches him without absorbing him. He accompanies her to San Francisco and eventually joins the X-Men in their new Haven Utopia. Nobody seems too fussed about that whole weird thing with Apocalypse, but then his evil horseman of death persona starts randomly emerging whenever Remy gets pissed. He keeps that to himself, but is secretly relieved when Rogue wants to take some space before resuming anything romantic with him. She wants to focus on controlling her powers and thinks he's too much of a loose cannon. During the franchise-wide event Second Coming, Remy joins in the expedition to Limbo to rescue Ilyana Rasputina in X-Men Hellbound. Being in Limbo immediately transforms him into the evil death persona, so he's extremely unhelpful. Magic and Pixie manage to shock him back to himself with their soul sword and soul dagger. After a conversation with the precognitive student Blindfold, in which death emerges one more time, I honestly don't remember if this plot ever mattered again. Right in if it did, I guess. I don't feel like checking. At Storm's request, Remy then acts as a mentor for troubled young assassin-turned-superhero X-23 in an X-23 solo series written by Marjorie Liu. Back on Utopia, in Carrie's legacy, he tells Rogue he's willing to wait for her until she'll commit to him. He starts working with a new X-Men team she's leading, which also includes his old flame Frenzy and Rogue's current flame Magneto. When the schism rolls around in 2011, though, Remy decides to side with Wolverine and leave Utopia for the new Jean Grey School for Higher Learning, where he becomes a teacher. In another Gambit solo series, this one by James Asmus and Clay Mann, Remy starts taking thief gigs part-time again. He discovers an ancient relic that burrows itself into his body, which leads him on a wacky quest with a thief named Joel. No relation to Joel Guthrie, the racist Guthrie. Do not worry about any of this. He gets the artifact out of his chest eventually. He then pivots into the short-lived all-new X-Factor by Peter David and Carmine to Gian Domenico, where he joins Polaris's new corporate X-Factor team and iFucks Quicksilver a bunch. In the 2018 miniseries Rogue and Gambit by Kelly Thompson and Pere Perez, Remy and Rogue are dispatched by Kitty Pryde to act undercover as spies at a couple's therapy retreat. This scenario obviously rekindles their actual romance. Then, in the X-Men Gold wedding special, Kitty leaves Colossus at the altar, inspiring Remy to steal the wedding. He proposes to Rogue, who accepts, and they're married by the rabbi Kitty had booked for her aborted ceremony. This pivots into the 12-issue maxi-series Mr. and Mrs. X by Kelly Thompson and John Basaldwa, which you should probably read if you're a Rogue and Gambit fan. Spiral shows up. Spiral's always fun. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Remy and his new bride Rogue are among the countless mutants to become citizens of the new sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. In a new volume of Excalibur by Teeny Howard and Marcus Toe, Remy joins Betsy Braddock in her journey as the new Captain Britain in an effort to save Rogue from a mysterious mystical coma. After adventuring with Betsy in Otherworld and surviving the franchise-wide event Ten of Swords, Remy's delighted when Rogue is elected to the new Krakoan team of X-Men at the first annual Hellfire Gala. To Betsy's surprise, Remy elects to remain with Excalibur despite Rogue's departure and continue to guard the boundaries between Otherworld and Earth-616. He relishes the opportunity to explore new realms. 
and steal whatever magical artifacts he might find in them. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back with former Marvel editor Chris Robinson talking about Remy Etienne Le Beau, Gambit, the White Devil, Le Diable Blanc, <laughs> Prince of the Thieves Guild, the Thieves Guild, I guess, in Gambit yeah, speak. The Thieves with a little apostrophe. Chris, <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> I'd love to talk a bit about your favorite storylines revolving around or just involving Gambit. What's your favorite stuff? Sure. Man, okay. So I'm going to give answers that I think like true, true, true Gambit fans are going to be like annoyed with. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm the one talking to you, so everybody's got to deal with it. So um, these are these are like stories that like stick in my head just from like you know catching me at the right time of youth or whatever i don't know yeah okay, so let's let's see um uh and i can't tell and i've heard you talk about this this story <laughs> storyline before and i can't tell if you dislike it or or you know think it's cute i don't know uh the fox the fox here uh oh milligan yeah, yeah the the fox arc where mystique poses as a new student named Fox and attempts to seduce him Absolutely. to break up him and Rogue because she doesn't approve of their relationship. I love it. I mean, so, like, the reason you can't tell is because, like, is Peter Milligan's X-Men good? <laughs> I don't know that I would say it's... I don't know that I would say it's good. And I love a lot of Peter Milligan's stuff, but I wouldn't... Like, I don't think that's his, you know, greatest uh, yeah, it's power. Yeah, not the highest on his... Uh, you know, he's right. done other stuff that is, like, definitely... yeah. Everyone's Even in the world convinced. of X, yeah. because his X-Force Ecstatics is, you know, great. But the X-Men run is weird. <laughs> like, here's sort of how I view it. I talk a lot about Chuck Austin's run on this podcast because Chuck Austin's run is affirmatively bad. But it's also one of the most fun to talk about because the plot is so completely fucking bug fucking insane. Sure. There's little jewels in it, like of characterization, where you go like, that's actually kind of neat. Like, let's pull that out. And Milligan, who follows Austin directly, is picking up the pieces of the Austin run. Right. So it makes total sense that Milligan's approach to it is like, well, this book should be kind of insane, right? Because sure. it's just been insane for a couple of years. At the same time, he kind of like calms it down a little bit, mm -hmm. you know? So it's just sort of like, it's not as... Nobody's as violently out of character as they often are in the Chuck Austin run. Right. But <laughs> the underlying plots, like the Mystique arc with Fox and Gambit is insane. The whole Golgotha arc, which is just the thing, is also insane, but is hilarious. There's just a lot of wild stuff in mm -hmm. this run, and I find it hard to not dig it, even if it's not qualitatively as much of a height as something like the Mike Carey run. Sure. So the thing I like about the Fox run, it, I, this is when I was like reading an issue and this is actually back when they had subscriptions. So I was like getting in, uh, getting a really terribly beat up copy mailed to me uh, once a month. Mm -hmm. I was on the younger side, uh, and, you know, I don't know, 14, 15, like, you know, so basically I was, I was shy. And it was also like one of the like earlier X-Men stuff I was reading, like, you know, I, like I had definitely read, um, you know, most of, of Grant stuff, but like I was very young in my, I, I wasn't like, you know, uh, I hadn't, I didn't see all the strings and know all the tropes of, of X-Men stuff at that point. Mm -hmm. 
So Mystique coming out of nowhere really shocked me. Like I was like really blown away. And I, th I think that's where we meet um, a, a, a few like enduring students too, right? Like Onyx. Yeah, Bling comes in there. We talked about this arc a bunch. I did a Bling episode with Steph Williams. That's funny if you haven't had a chance to hear it, where we talk a lot about this arc. Because, yeah, Bling, Onyx, Rainboy, who's right. hung around, uh, Flubber, who has not endured. <laughs> I forgot to mention him even in that episode. Yeah. Flubber, Flubber should be back in as, like, a, a product tie-in at this point, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah, right? <laughs> I actually think, I said this in the Bling episode, I think Fox was a fun character. And while it's a hilarious, great plot, it's kind of a bummer that she turns out to be Mystique. Yeah. <laughs> because you'd kind of like to keep her around. 100%. I think I, think I, I pitched this because, you know, obviously I spent a lot of time thinking about the younger mutants. Uh, like, you know, we should we should bring in the real Fox. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and it, it just never, and we never, uh, you know, didn't, didn't get around to it. Right. Uh, but yeah, that, that, that little, that little arc was, was uh, very fun to me. And I was, you know, again, like it's in that like straight boy fantasy of like, this girl's just throwing herself at you. And, and I was obviously too young to think about the like age of different stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. A lot of like, you know, kids fa fantasy romance stuff, you know, glosses over age different stuff anyway. And Gambit, notably resists he Definitely. has no yeah, interest we, we gotta give him that in <laughs> yeah and he's noted as like the slutty like bad boy of the x-men so it's very good form that he does not unlike some other teachers at this institute Wayne sinclair <laughs> yeah he doesn't go for it yeah that is the really funny bit because then mystique is so impressed mm -hmm. this is the truly this is where i'm like peter milligan this is too much <laughs> She's so impressed by his resolve that she then turns into Rogue and is like, as your reward, do you want to fuck Rogue? <laughs> and this is her daughter. It's yeah. Mystique, you're wrong for this. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, that, that's, that's like the next, that's like another, another level of test. Like, if you, if, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. And what's really fascinating there is it cuts away. Oh, I don't remember this. We don't know what yeah. happened. Like, I don't think he did. But if you want to think he did, you can. Yeah. I mean, he probably doesn't, but I have a... I think he probably doesn't. But I yeah. like that it's left ambiguous. It's like, you decide, is Gambit a complete scumbag or not? It's up to you, reader. Like, I enjoy that. Yeah, as much as, as much as, like, you know, as we're giving uh, Peter Milligan credit for being a little bit more, uh, you know, on model, I guess, in terms of, like, characters, like, that should be and was the Gambit model for a long time. Like, is he a scumbag right. or is he not? Exactly. And Mystique's whole deal is I'm completely insane <laughs> and will ruin your life by shape-shifting into your loved ones. Yeah. That is sort of what she does. Yeah, so that's, so that's a great one. Anybody listening hasn't read that or missed that uh, because of, you know, time, whatever, you know, I, I don't think it's a waste of your time to go read that. Yeah. Even though we spoiled the thing, so I don't know. <laughs> Um, and then let's see, here's an, uh, another one that like, for whatever reason sticks out in my head. Well, I know why it sticks out in my head. The John Lehman, Georges Jaunty, I believe was the artist. I might be wrong on, on, on the art, the like mid 2000s Gambit solo series. There's a single issue sort of like in between arcs when they used to do that, which is sort of fallen away as like, you don't get longer arcs anymore. It was called, I might be like conflating things, but like, I think it was called like X Lives and videotape. Essentially, it was like the fallout from the, from the opening arc. Somebody had mailed a Gambit sex tape to Rogue. 
<laughs> and he had to like he had to track it down before she got it. <laughs> and so he gets God. you know for whatever reason this is and this is like a very sitcommy like does this matter? Well, you know, there's so much gambit revenge porn circulating in the world, right? <laughs> Rogue probably lives in vague anxiety of the moment that page six is going to report that like a Gambit and <laughs> Frenzy sex tape just popped up. Yeah, I yeah, I think he's not a guy that, you know, he keep, he keeps his face in, in the photo, too. You know what I mean? Like, he's not. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, yeah. there's no. It's like he's full Tommy <laughs> Lee and Pam. Yeah. There's no. No, if it was if there is a Gambit and Frenzy sex tape, first of all, it is wild like you know that there's some real <laughs> extracurricular shit in that yeah you also know that remy and joanna would both be like hey there like waving to the camera living their best lives so honestly that would be fun that would be fun here's the thing if he's not going to cheat on rogue which i don't think he should do at this point then if you want to spice up the dynamic between them and their relationship, I think that the right thing to do is to emphasize their past. You know, yeah. she's accepted that he has a past. Sure. She's not going to leave him because his past is, I mean, nothing beats. I organized the Marauders and they did the mutant <laughs> massacre. Right. So, right. like, you know, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. You know, I don't think any of that would provoke the end of their marriage, but I do think it would be fun if, like, his ex-girlfriends come back to haunt him more. Things like that. Things like the Belladonna yeah. part. Where like, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> you know, like, I think that is always fun with them. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I it's, it's crazy in the, like, the present day of the ex line that they are married for better or for worse you know what i mean like mm -hmm. you know the whole the whole ethos right of the x-men now is like post everything right so the fact that like they're clinging to this very traditional old human thing is like very weird but like teeny makes it work yeah oh but just to close my 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 uh the, where i was going with that was there was this so there was this issue where he was running around trying to pull off the sex tape. He runs into Storm sunbathing on the roof for some reason. He's dragging around these three kids, uh, you know, ex-students who we like I never see again. But but that was like, a, like you know, in, in lieu of like a softball issue, right? Which is like shorthand for just like, you know, bumming around the mansion, the storytelling, right? Right. Uh, it was something that I, I uh, enjoyed at the time. But, you know, again, like these are not, these are not stories that like have, you know, that belong in like the canon of, of Gambit's life or anything like that. Like, you know, they happen and they sort of like give you a fun insight into his character in a, in a, in a small yeah. way. And, and sort of like, you know, as we, you, you've already gotten into, like, how many times can we talk about the Thieves Guild and the Assassin Guild? And, and, and you know, it's like that. I feel it's, I feel like that's very well trodden ground. Yeah. I did love when Kandra showed up in Excalibur because... Gambit and Rogue were in Saturnine Starlight Citadel mm -hmm. and they were like looking around and they're like, we're in a fantasy castle, Raimi. What should we do? And he's like, I don't know, sure. Like, what do you want to do? And she was like, you want to steal stuff? And he was like, this is why I love you. And that was really fun. <laughs> this is why you are my wife. <laughs> and so they just like raid Saturnine's closet and they find a big jewel in it. And he goes, oh, wait, God damn it. Zitalo, it is Kandra. And like Kandra suddenly is like wrapped around him like yeah. a ghost. And it's like, hey, sexy, it's me again. <laughs> I just, you know, the externals are characters oh, yeah. who are pretty widely derided because they mostly suck. <laughs>
apart from Apocalypse and Selene, who predate the concept being introduced and were right. retconned into being part of this subspecies, Kandra is the one that I think is worthwhile. I told Teeny, I was like, I'm going to miss Kandra. She's like, well, I have to kill one that you care about or like other ones <laughs> who cares. And I'm sure she'll be back at some point because totally. of the externals. They always come back. Yeah, that's their thing. She's just a fun foil for him. I like when X-Men characters have personal villains who are only really yeah. involved in their own plot. So the Thieves Guild and Assassin's Guild worship an external called Kandra as a goddess and she lives in a ruby and she's just <laughs> like a weird blonde sex pot is a fun character. She's just like, I, I enjoy that. I like that Nisiesa mini in general a lot. I'm a big fan of the obscure character Amanda Mueller, who has not even appeared one Zaladane, a.k.a. the Black Womb. Mm -hmm who is a Victorian-era serial killer of her own children because she is working with Mr. Sinister and experimenting on her own mutant offspring. And she's just like a really, that's a really fucked up character. <laughs> and we first meet her, we first meet her when Gambit is traveling through time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> There's a suggestion this is the thing that's weird about that character. She starts talking about her ex-husband, Daniel, who left her. Mm. And she's obviously very involved with Sinister. And so the implication fans took away was that her ex-husband, who had left after their children kept dying, yeah. was Daniel Summers, Scott and Alex's ancestor. Oh. It's never said on the page, yeah. but that would be a really cool beat because we meet Daniel Summers, that ancestor in Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, which is actually written by Peter Milligan, to go back to Milligan for a second. And that gives us Sinister's backstory as Dr. Milbury, which is how he's involved with Amanda. And so after that, like if the idea is that Sinister has been observing the Summers bloodline all this time, after that story with Daniel, and then until his great-great-grandchildren or whatever, right. Cyclops and Havoc, it doesn't seem like Sinister is that involved. So if he actually was involved because the immortal mutant Amanda Mueller is sort of the mutant progenitrix of the Summers line, that I think would be really interesting. Anyway. Man, that would give so much import to this character we've never really seen. <laughs> Mike Carey brought her back as like a really scary, like 200 year old looking scary, sexy lady in a corset. And it was really cool. And I would like to see her again. <laughs> the reason I bring it up yeah. on this podcast is because people who listen to my interview with Fabian probably remember he's very, very funny, but he also mm -hmm. just like doesn't remember this shit. Like you ask him <laughs> questions and he's like, I read that 35 years ago. I have no idea. In this case, the guy who runs Marvel Universe Appendix, or one of the writers there anyway, at one point asked him, like, was Amanda Mueller's ex-husband supposed to be Daniel Summers, Cyclops' ancestor? And he was like, I do not even remember who you're talking about. Oh, so, boy. <laughs> so we'll never know until some writer decides one way or the other. But again, like, I loved that Gambit mini because it has these weird female characters in it that I was intrigued by. And that is usually the best way to get me into a male character is to have sort of interesting female characters in his orbit. Mm -hmm. You also meet her daughter, Fontanelle, who is a character that he works with in the present. So there's like, it's sort of an, it, it's a weird time travel story. I mean, like Gambit time traveling is a weird story to begin with, right? Yeah. Like why? But it's fun. I, yeah. I enjoyed it. And there's a lot of Kandra content. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah. It's, get, like a character... <laughs> Let me tell you one character who didn't need uh, time travel involved in their in their in their history. Right, Gambit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's too funny. 
can I let me bring up um, X, Extreme? Extreme is, is yeah, yeah. Go for it. Interesting. Like he comes into that book late, uh, but then you know it as I forget. I forget exactly what happened, but like there seemed to be like less and less storm for whatever reason, and Rogue and Gambit sort of started take starting to take a, a lot of spotlight. She, uh, she gets that weird tattoo uh, that we never see again. There is a moment where, yeah, the focus of the book really shifts away for a sec from Storm and Sage to be more about Rogue and Gambit. And Rogue gets super powered up and like can recall all her past absorptions and is yeah. getting, like very overpowered in that way that a Chris Claremont dame sometimes does. But <laughs> it's in the services of then Chris takes away her powers and right. Gambit's. Like they both lose their powers for reasons. And they retire together for a while. And it kind yeah. of felt like he was almost giving them a happy ending. Like they end up coming back eventually, but they are then off the page for a while. So I think that's why they drew focus for those stories because he was like going to set them aside for a bit. That period is where I really did actually start to like buy into their relationship because in the nineties it was so tortured. And I was yeah. always just sort of like, he doesn't make you happy though. Like that was always sort of my feeling. I was like, girl, like go <laughs> somewhere else. Like you need to live your own life. But in extreme, I was like, I get this. They're sort of companionably settled into a couple. Like yeah. you can tell why they like each other and he's matured and she's matured and they're just sort of doing their thing. Claremont loves a tattoo. She does get that full sleeve yeah. and disappears. Disappears immediately. Yeah. Well, he did that with Kitty too. Oh yeah. He got true. a bicep tattoo in mechanics and then we never saw it again. After <laughs> yeah. Tattoos are like the worst thing. Uh, I, you know, any, anytime a writer would say like, I want to give him a tattoo. I'd be like, I don't think you do. Well, keeping track editorially of that, I imagine, is very annoying. And But also, like, artists don't want to draw, like, tattoos. Artists don't want to draw it every yeah, panel. They so they leave it out, and then you're, like, as the editor, responsible for catching that the tattoo's missing. Which is yeah, and then, and then you're policing people, and then, like, now you're no, nobody's favorite person. So, like, it's just that. And also, like, what does the tattoo get us? Like, you know what? I would love to see a, a, a smattering of, like, Hannah tattoos. Like, you know, they went to boardwalks on the weekends. And they they had their moment, mm -hmm. you know what I mean. So you get you get your you get your uh, visual expression of of you know whatever needs to happen in that story, but also like, hey, it's gonna wash off in a couple weeks. <laughs> well, now on Krakoa, what's handy is you can just kill them and bring them back without it. This is true. Yeah, I'm I'm shocked the um uh, the pyro face tattoo was lasted as long I as it has. I am stunned yeah. that pyro has still got like I thought that meant he was gonna go out like two issues later. <laughs> <laughs> I, I too thought like, oh, well, this is not going to last, but it is lasting. And, and <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah. But um, what do you call it? The, the extreme costumes are amazing. Salvador LaRocco was killing it on covers. I forget in, who was doing in the interiors at that point, but like they all looked great. You know what I mean? Um, I think there was, there was like a little, a little bit of flirtation too with Gambit and Storm, but in the same way that Gambit is sort of like flirty with everyone. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was a good... There was a little bit of a vibe that they might, like, want to invite Sage to hang out. Yeah. If you get what I mean. 100%. As with Chris Claremont's work generally, you have to sort of, again, choose to see that if you want to see it. I don't see Sage as particularly interested in Gambit, uh, so I don't think that that ever went too well. Totally. Sage is hanging out that whole series just waiting for Storm to take her on a date. 100%. Yeah, it, <laughs> and, we, and we can, and that's almost, and I'm sure you already covered this in the Storm episode, but like she, she has, 
you know, different flirtations. Like, well, Yukio, Callisto, all of that stuff, even before you get, like, she has the relationship on the page with Forge. Totally. But most of her really enduring romantic attachments, this comes up again in Extreme, are people like Callisto and Yukio. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, Sage gets so jealous when Callisto and Yukio and Storm are all hanging out together. You can tell that she's just, like, really bummed that the other murderous brunettes in cat suits (laughs) are getting to hang out with Aurora instead. Yukio is another character who helps to characterize Gambit. Like, one thing that's a repeated beat that keeps happening throughout the 90s Mm -hmm. is a character who is a bad guy or someone who's like a chaotic neutral sort of character will reveal they have a long history with Gambit and that he's done terrible things. So like Sabretooth tells Rogue about a time that Gambit seduced a girl because he wanted to steal a valuable jewel and then he let her die. Yeah. And he's like, don't you know who you're dating, frail or whatever. Then there's the similar beat with... Frenzy, Joanna Cargill, where mm-hmm. like she and Remy are on a first name basis. We still don't know what that's all about. It yeah. came up again in Carrie's run once Joanna was on the X-Men, but it's still a history that's been left unexplored. But the implication is that they were maybe romantically involved at one point. Yukio is another character. She tells Storm, you can't trust him. He's a bad guy. Mm. It's clear that they have a history together. She's like, a leopard does not change its spots, and you really should not be trusting this guy to be like a superhero. Totally. And Yukio's never been evil, but like, you know, she's pretty amoral. She was a professional assassin for the Yakuza. Like, that's her, you know, (laughs) she's not precious about things. And that is all sort of foreshadowing for the eventual reveal of Gambit's involvement with Sinister, which is something that's teased from the very beginning. Although the first time he hears the name Mr. Sinister, when Storm, who's a teenager at the time because of Nanny, is like the mansion was destroyed by Mr. Sinister. And he's like, cool name, you know, like it's mm." as though he's never heard it before. And that you can view as him like... He he thought it was Sinister with a Y, maybe? Or like, you know, an alternate... But you could view that as him just being like, oh, I have never heard of Mr. Sinister. Who are we talking about? (laughs) (laughs) From their sort of earliest appearances, or at least from Gambit's earliest appearances, there is this implied connection between them. And I would love to ask Chris Claremont about this because it's possible this is apocryphal. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But what... I understand to be the case is that Claremont's initial plan for Gambit and Sinister was very different. The idea was that Nathan, the bully in the orphanage who tormented Cyclops as a child, was a permanently stunted mutant child who was still at that orphanage in Nebraska, and that his mutant power was to project out these psychic facets of his personality. And so he had created the ultimate villain and the ultimate hero, and they were operating in the world sort of independently of his consciousness, but that was his power. Mm. Those two psychic projections were to be Mr. Sinister and Gambit. That is why Mr. Sinister from the beginning is clearly tied to the orphanage in Nebraska. It's why there's a weird association made between him and the bully Nathan. None of that stuff ever came to fruition. And obviously, there's a very different reveal in the long run. But I'm glad it's not what happened, because I think that Sinister and Gambit are stronger characters the way they are now. 
But I like it conceptually because, like you said at the beginning of the episode, if you're a 14-year-old boy who looks at Gambit, a lot of the reactions that 14-year-old boys have to that character is, this is the coolest superhero ever. Whereas other people might find him a little over the top or ridiculous. So the idea that he is the psychic heroic projection of like a 12 or 13 year old boy is a really compelling idea. Similarly, Mr. Sinister is about as ridiculous a villain as you could come across. Yeah. And the idea that he's a child's boogeyman sort of made into a real and terrifying threat. Yeah, that's also interesting. Yeah, that definitely tracks. Yeah, that's that is where you get into like, you know, the the cha- ever-changing hands of, of superhero comics, right? Like, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, we miss out on so many cool, you know, closing the loops uh, of story loops because, you know, somebody somebody pu- put the, um, you know, waited to, uh, one arc too long, basically, to, like, <laughs> get into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, Chris Claremont thought he had all the time in the world. He introduced Definitely. Gambit not long before he's pushed out of the series he'd been writing for 16 years. He had no reason to think that he wouldn't have time to resolve all of these storylines. Then Fabian Niciesa establishes the third Summers Brother plot Mm -hmm. with Sinister. And while it was never Fabian's intention, lots of fans thought Gambit was going to be the third Summers Brother because he has the red eyes, he has an energy power, Mm -hmm. he was an adopted orphan. So there were all sorts of theories about that. That did not turn out to be the case because Fabian introduced the new character, Adam X, who was intended to be the third Summer's brother, except then that didn't turn out to be the case until this year when Fabian was able to make him the fourth Summer's brother in X-Men Legends because we got Vulcan instead in uh, the aughts. No comment. (laughs) Vulcan. Claremont, though, in X-Men The End gives Gambit a backstory that is presumably not canon on Earth-616, but is an interesting thing because Claremont wrote it, where the reveal in the end is that Gambit is technically a Summers brother. He's a clone of Cyclops mixed with Sinister's own DNA. Mm. That makes him, I guess, actually like a Summers nephew, right? Because he's (laughs) sort of like Cyclops and Sinister's child. Yeah. Which is a really weird idea that's fascinating. And I don't know, they probably shouldn't bring that into the main continuity, but I I wouldn't hate it. I wouldn't hate it. It would be like very Superboy, right? Like Carmel. It would, yeah, it would be, it would definitely be, interesting for a little while yeah i don't know but it might just be eventually too much of a weird thing to just like saddle the characters with totally that is definitely what i would say to like a lot of things that get talked about on the various cerebrocast episodes it is interesting if it would be a little bit tighter but like it's it's almost better if they're like you know new threads that go off into different places and and you know daniel is not a, a summers and like you know what i mean like it's just it's there's there is such a thing as too tight uh, but it is fun to like imagine imagine a better <laughs> a better a better take. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the podcast where I find ways to work Zaladane in every episode. So <laughs> obviously I like because well, because that that I think what that is is exactly what you're identifying. Is the reason Zaladane captured my imagination and so many of the listeners' imaginations after she came up in the Polaris episode is that it's one of Claremont's most prominent and obvious dropped plots. Yeah. Like she's Polaris's sister, that is genetically confirmed to be true. What does that mean? Because right. Magneto kills her and she's never been seen again. Mm-hmm. If she's Polaris's sister, genetically, 
I would think she's also Magneto's daughter, which would be a really interesting story to tell. Mm -hmm. Especially right now, now that Lorna and Eric know that they're family, especially right now when they're not getting along very well Mm -hmm. during the trial of Magneto by Leah Williams, which the first issue just came out last week and I quite enjoyed it. Anyway, that's a digression. But the appeal on some level a little bit is to take those stories that didn't go somewhere or that went somewhere bad. I mean, Cy Spurrier is telling an onslaught story and it's great. Who knew that that was possible? (laughs) (laughs) You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, no, no stone should like, like use every bit of, you know, story gristle that is out there for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. but yeah, so the reveal actually, though, that explains much later on what Gambit and Sinister's connection is, is a reveal toward the late 90s after Age of Apocalypse. So yeah, it's mm-hmm. the late 90s. Basically, right before the Age of Apocalypse reality warp happens, Rogue and Gambit kiss. When they come back, though, once the reality warp is over, she absorbs his powers and memories for a moment. Right. And she's not sure what she saw but she knows there's something in his past that she's now aware of that makes her very uncomfortable that is eventually revealed to be the fact that he long ago because his power was unstable was taken in by mr sinister who performed brain surgery on him to correct the overloading of his powers which by the way that's another piece of evidence that the gambit as a summers people love to trot out because Mm. Cyclops's brain injury has impacted his energy power. So, right. you know, again, that's sort of circumstantial, but it's there. It tracks, yeah. And because he felt indebted to Sinister, when Sinister asked him to assemble a team of the best killers in the world, he did it. And he brought together the Marauders, the original Marauders, including Sabretooth, who he already knew, as we've said already, and John Greycrow, formerly mm-hmm. Scalp Hunter, also like an old crime buddy of gambits and then a whole bunch of other people arc light vertigo riptide etc he doesn't know that they're planning to genocide the morlocks he thinks that they're going to maybe capture people for sinister to study or something i think that's a little naive when he knows exactly who he's hired you know like it's not like sinister asked him get me the finest genetic scientists on earth it was like find me some people who can slaughter a tunnel full of homeless people is basically what he does (laughs) so i don't know if gambit was in denial or what but once he's there with them and the killing starts he freaks out he can't fight them all himself but he ends up rescuing one child and running away with her and that child will grow up via interdimensional time travel don't worry about it to be marrow Mm. so that is like his great act of contrition on some level is that this girl lived because he interceded, but she only would have died because he brought a bunch of serial killers into her house. So I don't know how much we should give him a ton of credit for it. Anyway, this all does get eventually revealed and it completely shatters his relationship with Rogue and with the X-Men. There's that great moment where they're in Antarctica and he and Rogue have just had sex for the first time because they were power dampeners. Mm -hmm. And she was a virgin. So they've just had this really intimate, like romantic moment that matters a lot to her. Then she finds out about his past as like a serial killer HR manager (laughs) and uh, is not happy about it. And she leaves him in Antarctica in the tundra to die. Yeah. 
the way that they explain it away for her is like she's still being influenced by the part of him she absorbed when they kissed that one time and his self-loathing about this event is what is making her so unforgiving but personally i like the idea of her just going you are not the man i thought you were and we are done and you can survive or not but i'm leaving <laughs> i like that beat i mean if they hadn't i guess ameliorated it a little it would be hard to see them ever getting back together again but I like that she stands kind of so resolute about it. Yeah. At least there, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like the most dramatic thing you can do. Like, you know what I mean? How like it, it is the, the like <laughs> soap opera version. Rogue fought in the mutant massacre and saw some of her friends get really horrifically injured and like watched mm-hmm. as all of these people died. She was on the X-Men back then. It was one of her first big outings as an X-Man, honestly, was Mutant Massacre. So I completely get why it would be a real deal breaker for her in particular. Yeah, it, it tracks for sure. But I do think that that is where he kind of falls off the franchise a little bit mm-hmm. because he eventually comes back, but he and Rogue don't get together for a while because this like green ghost lady who saved his life in Antarctica has fallen in love with him and is like threatening to kill Rogue. And Rogue is all tied up with Joseph and there's soap opera stuff. But eventually by like 2000, they are back together and that leads into Extreme X-Men where, as you said, they get a lot of focus, their relationship is explored more and they do get an opportunity after they lose their powers for a while to live as normal people in the way that they kind of always wished they could and to prove to themselves that their relationship does work. And it isn't just, I want what I can't have. He's not like, I want the forbidden fruits that they will kill me if I touch it. You know, do I dare to eat a peach? Not if it'll absorb your soul, right? Like, not ideal. (laughs) I think that it was good for them to have that time, but... It also makes sense that once they get back and are superheroes again and all of that, they have some trouble in their relationship because it's the first time they've ever really like had to sit and just be together. So it makes sense that in the Milligan run, they have run into some, you know, snags in their relationship. Right. That Mystique exploits. Then he gets captured by Apocalypse and turned into a horseman of death. This I wasn't crazy. Yeah, this was a little weird. This, this, I think I think when uh, <laughs> there there have been so many uh, Apocalypse horsemen, right? That's what I was gonna say. We don't yeah. know what to do with this guy. How about how about this? You know what I mean? I don't think any horsemen of Apocalypse have ever worked besides the original ones that Simonson and Simonson put together and the ones we have now who yeah, are like these children from ancient times and very specifically i'm not crazy about rick remender's uncanny x-force but warren becoming apocalypse and creating his own horseman that was kind of cool yeah as a concept otherwise all of the like interim he just has picked four random x-men characters to be his horseman this time has never really worked for me yeah and this was probably the one that worked the least it's polaris as pestilence gambit as death and then sunfire and gazer as famine and (laughs) war i know i i took me a second even remember what the fuck his name is 
it doesn't really work for me. I think that the evil gambit form with the jet black skin and white hair that looks like Drizzt Dorden is like pretty ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look cooler. The whole point of, of becoming a, a horseman, right, is to look cooler. Is that you get a cool redesign. Yeah, and guess what? Didn't didn't look cooler than he, when he started. <laughs> right. Polaris was walking around looking like the brother from Full Metal Alchemist. She had like a full suit of armor <laughs> that was cool. Sunfire turned in his AOA design, which was a way cooler design than yeah. his regular design. You know, I guess Gazer improved. I don't actually remember what he looked like beforehand. <laughs> but Gambit, it's just like, okay, you're a drow elf from D&D now. Yeah. In a trench coat. Like, who cares? That takes him and Rogue out of each other's orbit because he's evil for a minute and he nearly kills her when they're like all fighting. When we next see him, it's Circa Messiah Complex and he's working for Mr. Sinister as one of the Marauders, which is like crazy. And Rogue is like, how could you, Remy? And all of that. (laughs) It turns out, of course, that he is doing it. I mean, I don't know why Sinister was like, ah, yes, like this will make sense. We can trust him, you know. I mean, I guess it's a parallel for how stupid it is for Rogue to invite Lady Mastermind to be one of the X-Men. Because the second that the chips are down, Gambit betrays the Marauder as much as Lady Mastermind betrayed the X-Men and helps out. So there's that. But then I feel like his plot for a while is just like, when I get too angry, I turn into Drizzt Orden again. Like he just, you know, (laughs) it's not... It becomes like a Hulk form for him for a while because then they like, especially when he is on the rescue mission to get Ilyana during Second Coming in Limbo. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't super matter. And he and Rogue are not together at that time because she's like, I need space, Remy. And he uh, encourages her to try the relationship with Magneto and get it out of her system mm-hmm. and insists that he'll be there when she's ready. Quite honestly, that strategy turned out to be the way to go because she does, in fact, get that out of her system. Then she goes in the schism out back to New York and she and Magneto break up and it's very easy for Gambit to show back up because he is also at the Jingre school and then they, you know, get back together again eventually. Somewhere in there is the X-23 series that you mentioned where he's a fun mentor figure. Mm-hmm. Laura is a character I really have gaps on because I didn't really watch Evolution when it was airing. Mm-hmm. I met her in NYX, which is like... Sure, very different. <laughs> yeah, and like so my first impression of her, I was not interested. So I really was resistant to that character. But now that she's such a big deal character, and I eventually will have to get to her on this podcast, I uh, have been back reading a lot of stuff. And I agree, he's fun in that. Then he has his little solo series that was fun that you mentioned by James Asmus and Clay Mann. Yeah, the Clay Mann one, yeah. I've never been like that into Gambit, which is part of my gambivalence personally, but (laughs) Clay Mann draws a real hot Gambit. Yeah, he knows how to draw abs for sure. Yeah, I I was feeling that. I also think, I think that's the one where the intention was... They wanted to reveal that Gambit was bisexual and it got shut down. But I don't know if that's actually true. That's what I've always heard, which is something that happens in corporate comics all the time. Right? Yeah. Right. Writers have a lot of walk in with like a lot of intentions and it's never the intention of the company. You know what I mean? Like there's right. No, yeah. exactly. It's like Scott Lobdell, Chuck Austin, Marjorie Liu, several writers all did is Iceman gay plots with Iceman before they finally let Bendis do it. You right. Know what I mean, so 
I think at this point, it would be a very easy thing to reveal casually about Gambit, especially because he's in this monogamous relationship with Rogue. So it's not even like he needs to date, but you could right. just have... The plan in this series, I think, was just that there was going to be a man in the story who it's implied he used to be involved with at some point, like during his teething days. <laughs> and I think that would be a very easy thing to do, especially actually to go back the plot that we suggested sort of the idea that like rogue is constantly just beset by his annoying exes. Like if one of them was a guy, that would be funny. Of course. Like, oh my God, Ramey, I don't care. But like, you could have prepared me. I was not, I didn't know this one was one too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then she thinks about it. I mean, if she's into Magneto, she's into bisexual guys. So like she thinks about it for a second. She's just like, actually, hmm, now I have thoughts. <laughs> he, he, him, him, the, the whole thing of like him having mysterious, things from his past is like any anything that plays back into that into that story yeah loop that's half is the a positive fun. yeah 100 percent. Right. so i can see it it's it's just like you know they at the time i'm you know i'm sure things things are different but like never really that different you know <laughs> this is this is something yeah. to put in teenies here <laughs> oh sh- listen yeah. There's no doubt in my mind. I mean, have you seen the crop top she's put him in in that book? (laughs) I'm sure it's crossed her mind. Then after that, he's in briefly the final iteration of Peter David's X Factor, the corporate team that happens, all new X Factor after Investigations concludes, where he's working for Polaris at like a corporate X Factor team. That book didn't run very long. No. He had fun chemistry in it with Quicksilver. This is around when he gets those cats. I don't remember exactly when he got the cats, but yeah, the cats. The recurring now. beat that Gambit is a cat guy and has like several stray cats that he's adopted, which I find like that also endeared me to the character. Yeah, and then they do the best Gambit decision ever, which is that after Kitty leaves Piotr at the altar, Gambit like steals the wedding. I mean, yeah. like, he just is like, "Well, we're all here in the chapel. It's free. Rug, you want to get married?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they get married. And I thought that was great because I was dreading the marriage of Colossus and Shadowcat. That was like not something I ever wanted to see. The fact that not only does that get sandbagged, but this other couple that fans are really invested in got married instead was a cute idea. And then that yeah. goes into Mr. and Mrs. X, which I did enjoy. I think uh, I think the marriage switch, because it was for a while, it was like they were definitely going to get married. I think it was Donnie, I think, that may have thrown out. Yeah. Yeah. Donnie Cates was like, what if they don't get married and then Gambit and Rogue get married instead? Yeah. And I will be forever grateful. I'm never going to read a Venom comic. No <laughs> it's nothing to do with him personally. It's just not my not my thing. But I will always be indebted to him for that, for sure. Yeah. He, he, he gave, he gave you something, great. whether or not you wanted it. He sure did. Yeah. Whether or not I ever read a <laughs> single page of yeah. Venom or... Is he on Hulk now, right? Uh, yeah, I think it's Hulk. Um, but but really, he's on Substack right now, right? Like everybody. Well, right, you know? yeah, right. All of the discourse and people's personal feelings about Substack as a company itself, aside, totally. which I think are valid and are just not something I want to dig too deep into on this podcast because I've heard a variety of opinions that I think are reasonable. 100%, yeah. I will say, I think that competition is good. Very good. It's a good thing for Marvel and DC to look at this new thing that's rising up and thinking, okay, what are we going to offer talent to make it worthwhile to continue to work here? And I think that when two companies rule the whole landscape for the most part, 
yeah that is bad to, <laughs> yeah so yeah. you know i think that the competition aspect is going to be a really good thing yeah I, and i should also like uh uh you know uh, the, the, what is it like proper declaration like i'm working on full disclosure yeah full yeah. disclosure i'm working on uh someone's sub spec so that i don't that's not influencing i think i i'm i actually align pretty closely with you like you know there, there's a lot of valid things to uh arguments to be made against it but yeah what i've said is that if anybody for whatever reason, whether it's the discussion about other people they platform or, you know, this kind of direct model generally or like whether you just fucking hate newsletters, whatever yeah. your opinion is on the platform. I think that it is a heartening thing to see creators getting paid well to do work that they own. Yep. Very good. What other stories are your favorites? Do you have any others you want to talk about or shall we move into the listener questions? Let's see. Is there any any issues that I think, you know what? I, we shouldn't get into it because that's not what this podcast is about. But I do want to throw out the Ultimate X-Men uh, Gambit two-parter. I know that this, mm-hmm. this podcast is not focused on, on, on that at all. But just the idea of like, you know. His 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 redesign and they, they you know his he you know charging a guy's head like he was like a way different character but it was it came down to like this <laughs> him doing like cool shit with his powers you know what I mean like that you know the whole the whole ultimate line was like you know reducing down to like what people remember and know about these these folks right um, so mm-hmm. so uh, you know if that that's like something I would point to is like you know. As much as we love the the Tease Guild and and Assassin's Guild and all all this stuff, it's like at the end of the day, his endurance is because it's rad to like charge shit up with your hands and make it explode, you know? Yeah. And also he has a really strong gimmick as a character, which is why it was funny that Carmen took the codename gimmick when she was imitating him in Children of the Atom Mm -hmm. because he doesn't need to use cards. He just likes to use cards because he makes him feel like a cool guy. He also doesn't need to fight with a bow staff like Donatello from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but he mm-hmm. does because it's cool. Like he's just into yeah, that it's just because showmanship, it's cool. which Absolutely. is fun. <laughs> yeah. The one thing I will say that I liked about the ultimate story is it was a clever idea to then kill him off and have him be the Carol Danvers character that Rogue permanently absorbs. Because then you had this sort of interesting dynamic of keeping the cool power, but having a different rogue that though was when that book started to really go awry for me was when it started to feel like they were doing things specifically to be different rather than to simplify the world which was the stated intent right let's get into listener questions so many of you wrote in about gambit which makes sense because my gambivalence is well known and yet he is an enormously popular character I can't read them all but we will go through a bunch and see what we can do Miro writes, hey, Connor and Chris, I think the driving force for Gambit's popularity in the 90s was the mystery and hint of danger around the character. Ever since his mysteries have been revealed and he's been solidly one of the good guys for decades now, he's been defanged and domesticated. The intrigue is all gone. I still enjoy seeing the character around, but I can't help but wonder if sometimes characters just run their course or perhaps those old hooks could be reintroduced through a heel turn. What are your thoughts on that? Thanks. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are Miro hit on something that plagues, I think, a lot of X-Men and probably a lot of characters at large. Wolverine had the same problem. And Ben Percy understood that. And Ben Percy, mm-hmm. in a time when we are embracing you know, every, every, all X-Men, all mutants together, he was very adamant about keeping Wolverine's loner status. You know what I mean? And even though he's there and he's, he's doing the thing, he doesn't lose sight of that. And I feel like that's 
if we could get back to that in a, in a way that made sense or even in a way that doesn't make sense. And, and then we just explain it, you know, over, over the, um, the, the story arcs, or, you know, after that, but like, yeah, G- Gambit's mystery and sort of like the idea that he has these past, this, this, you know, this very sorted past that we, we don't know everything about is, is, a, is a huge plus. You know, that's a story engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I do think actually that Wolverine was much more hurt by it than any other character because once all the origin stuff had happened, yeah. honestly, all the interest I had in Wolverine <laughs> was kind of gone. <laughs> it didn't help that he was very overexposed yeah. around the same time, you know? Like, often it's better to ask the question and not answer it. Another similar thing is, like, I'm not a big Doctor Who person at all, but... I watched the seasons with Alex Kingston's River Song because I like Alex Kingston. I thought that character was fun. But the more things that they explained about her mysterious backstory and that they revealed, the less interesting the character became. And it eventually became clear that, like, oh, you don't really have a good plan here. You were just sort of coasting on the fact that you cast a good actress and gave her a mysterious backstory where nobody knows what her deal is that can't always sustain itself is the thing. And I think that Gambit is a case where in part because his romance with Rogue became his central storyline, he ended up not being able to keep all of those secrets because the secrets needed to be revealed for his relationship with Rogue to progress. Yeah, Uh, Han Solo is like another character like this that is like, you know, defined by their relationship in a way that like sort of undercuts all the cool shit we had about them previously. Yeah, once Han is Mr. Leia, there's not yeah. really anything else going on with that character, particularly. Here's the thing, that usually happens to female characters, so I don't mind sure. when there are male characters that it happens to. Turnabout is fair play, but with Gambit, I do think that, yeah, the danger of him is somewhat gone. Oh, I also yeah. think that's because he was, like, the 90s bad boy, and now he's a grown man. And, it may, like, he's been allowed to have character growth, which I think is a good thing. I personally don't think a heel turn would be useful for the character. Yeah, I think it would just be regressive. And I don't think that anyone would buy it because, again, we've seen this plot before of Gambit has turned evil, but he always comes back around and there's always an explanation because here's the bottom line. Gambit is too popular a character to keep him away for too long, and Gambit and Rogue are too popular as a couple to keep yeah. them apart for very long. Even in the aughts, when he was really de-emphasized and their relationship was off again, he still kept turning up like a bad penny because you can't get rid of the guy. And eventually they were back together. I just think that you have to surrender to that a little bit at some point. The way to then move forward, I think, is to emphasize the other things about him that are interesting, which leads to the next question which comes from Jordan Broadway, who writes, Hello, Connor, an esteemed guest, and thank you for what I'm sure is another hilarious and insightful episode. As a longtime listener, part of me is surprised that my first time writing is for Gambit of all characters, since for years he was someone I felt zero connection with. That was until last year when COVID shut down the comics industry, and I finally took the time to do a chronological Claremont X-Men reread. Prior to that, I'd never actually read Gambit's first appearance, and while the de-aging of Storm for that story was, shall we say, indulgent, I didn't find Gambit anywhere near as creepy in it as I was expecting. Superhero comics don't have a great track record with adult male characters hanging out with younger girls. But in Claremont's brief run with Remy, I never once felt like he wanted anything more than to protect a fellow thief. Meanwhile, it had never even occurred to me that Storm's childhood would make her and Remy simpatico, since I can barely remember them ever talking to each other in later stories. By the time Storm fully returned to normal and Extinction Agenda, I was a little bit bummed because I found cool older brother Gambit a lot more interesting than paperback romance scoundrel Gambit ever was. 
My questions are, has Storm and Gambit's friendship ever really come up again? And has Gambit ever been used in another mentor role, maybe for actual children? If not, why do you think that is? Is it just a casualty of Storm's popularity dipping while the Gambit-Rogue relationship took off? Does Wolverine have first dibs on bonding with all the new kids? Have the X-Writers as a whole just not wanted to talk about the weird age play stuff ever again? Which, I mean, fair, but Nanny's out here claiming her place as a mascot of the X-Line. Anyway, sorry for the long rambling question, but thanks if you actually read it on the air. Jordan yeah. Broadway. Well, thank also, you for amazing again. name, Jordan Broadway. I love that. Yeah, that's a great name. That's a fucking comic book character. That is a comic book character. That's awesome. So it's a couple different things. One is, yes, the teenage girl sidekick thing is much more closely associated with Wolverine. And literally, when the Gambit and Storm storyline was happening simultaneously in the same book, the Wolverine and Jubilee storyline was happening. And that was just the one that was more popular. There's also just the fact that, like, yeah, Storm was never going to stay a teenager. Like, that was a temporary plot. Although, when Claremont got to do X-Men Forever, he clearly felt that there were more stories to tell with the Teen Storm character because he kept her around for longer than she was in the actual continuity. Then he did lots of very weird stuff in that book that we're not going to get into. But, you know, listen, as always, if you're listening, Chris Claremont, you are my god. So anything I make fun of, it's all in good fun. I think that the cool older brother Gambit thing you're talking about, though, is how the character is sort of being written now to some extent. And I think that that is the direction to take the character in. Storm and Gambit's friendship has come up on occasion. There's a reason why he was on the Extreme X-Men team, right? Like he is one of her reliable people in a pinch. But in the 90s, he was on the blue team and she was the leader of the gold team. So they didn't interact as much. The reason that we think of a specific team from the 90s as like the core iconic X-Men of that period is because the cartoon literally just used the blue team and dropped the gold team, except instead of Psylocke, they took Storm and Jean out of the gold team and put them on the blue team. And that's the cartoon cast. Right. So you get a lot more of their interactions in the cartoon because they're on the same team, whereas in the book, they weren't mm-hmm. until after AOA. And then he gets the whole reveal with the Marauders and everything. So, yeah. And then you, you get Gambit and Jubilee. Or, yeah, Gambit and Jubilee there, too. So, like, you know. Yeah. yeah. And Gambit and Jubilee have an interesting relationship historically, which hopefully we'll get to see more of in Excalibur. Now that, again, Rogue leaving, I think, freed up Gambit to do more stuff with other characters. It's hard when you have a couple in your book not yeah. to have them be doing things together, I think, because mm-hmm. it's realistic. So I like also the realism of, it's okay for my wife and I to have different <laughs> jobs. And, you know, like, we can have different workplaces, like most married people do. Totally. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see more of Gambit and Jubilee's relationship because she's not, you know, a little kid anymore by any means, but she's probably in her early 20s, let's say, especially because she was a vampire for all those years. So, yeah. you know, I think that he definitely can fulfill that cool older brother role with her, which would be fun to see more of again. He already is kind of filling that role on the team, like I've said. So I'd like to see more of that. Otherwise, when we've seen him in a mentorship or teaching role, he's not very good at it. Like famously yeah. in the Milligan. He tried arc. to bang a, t- a student. So he well, failed. He, you know, he d- actually, 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 she, the student tried to bang him and he didn't. I don't do know that that defense ever, ever works. <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, <laughs> no, I know. I know. But it is what happens in the story. It helps that it yeah. turns out she's like a 150 year old shapeshifter. 
but like notably throughout that arc, the repeated joke is that Bling is just trying to like take her classes and learn and like do tutorial. And he's like the worst, most inattentive teacher. She's like teaching him things about mutant history that he just doesn't know. So it's just not his strong suit. Mm -hmm. But the X-23 series by Marjorie Liu, as Chris mentioned, is a fun example of that. He does step in to kind of be her big brother a bit in that series. Yeah. That might be worth checking out if that's a dynamic that you like. Sam Gladstone writes, isn't turning potential energy into kinetic energy just throwing something? (laughs) 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 That is a great question. And yeah, I guess technically... My sense is that what he actually does, and like I literally never took physics. I have never ever taken it in my life. That's amazing. It was optional, my senior year of high school. They made it optional. What? Well, I took an AP instead. Okay. So I like I was on an honors track. So my last year of high school, I just didn't take a science actually that's, because that's I incredible. Done, I had done <laughs> earth science in eighth grade, so I had run through them all. And physics was optional, so I didn't take physics because here's the bottom line: I'm fucking terrible at math. Sure. And I was just like, "This is going to be a disaster for me." So I didn't take physics. I ended up being forced to take calculus because they were like, "Your math score isn't good enough for you to be in AP statistics." I was like, "AP statistics is easier than calculus, you idiots!" But whatever, it's <laughs> fine. It was 15 years ago, and I'm over it. Yeah. Anyway. So I think what he does, though, is activate the potential kinetic energy in an object, right? So it's like, yeah, it's, uh, not, ju- it's not just regular throwing. It's like how it would be if you threw it 200 miles an hour, I guess. And the answer yeah. is it explodes. I don't I, know. I just would say don't fucking worry about it. Like anyone with super speed would explode. Like sure. the organs would liquefy. So we just, it's a superhero story. We try not to worry about this too much. Warren has hollow bones to help him fly, but they don't break <laughs> easily. Like, you know, like right. you just have to, I mean, I don't know if they're actually hollow. They're sort of hollow. I remember that they're like, there's a bone thing going on. Longshot has hollow bones. And he, he definitely does. Don't break every yeah. second. No, the, Gambit, Gambit is, you know, like all comic book characters should follow this rule, but he definitely follows this rule. And that is, the rule of cool if it looks cool yeah it works it's do it's happening is it Don't fun? Worry about we'll it. do it yeah yeah exactly do not worry about it Jeremy Large writes, Hi, Connor, an amazing guest. Like many of your listeners and guests, my first exposure to the X-Men was the 1990s animated series in which Gambit was a major character. Likewise, in the Del Rey tie-in novels and Marvel comics that I happened across in the 90s, Gambit was a central character in the franchise, filling the role of the Han Solo, the roguish charmer who hides his heart of gold behind a devil-may-care facade. But somewhere around 2002, he drastically declined in prominence in the X-Line. He's pretty much absent from the Morrison and Whedon runs, he's a villain in the post-decimation era, and I don't remember him making much of an impact in any of the Utopia era or Ben Sarah stuff. By that time, I'd mostly stopped following X-Men until House of X, Powers of Ten, and the only event that seemed to happen to him since then was his marriage to Rogue. I know they had their own series for a hot minute, but it really feels like his prominence in the franchise has diminished since his 90s heyday. My question is, why do you think he's never been that prominent again? He seemingly has it all. Created by Chris Claremont, cool power, iconic look, fills a niche that the X-Team didn't quite have up to that point, the thief and ladies' man with the heart of gold. And of course, he has prominent connections to other X-characters, like Sinister and the Marauders. 
He was a super popular character for about a decade. Was his role in the team filled by other characters like Phantom X? Was Gambit a victim of the way certain characters were emphasized and de-emphasized around the Morrison run and the decimation that followed? Is this a case of a character not having a steward? Or do you think he was a flash in the pan who didn't have enough interesting relationships and character traits to sustain him beyond the 90s? Once again, thank you for your insightful and hilarious podcast that makes me think about these characters more deeply and thoughtfully. By the end of every episode, I'm a fan of the character and want them starring in a team book, whether they have one Zaladane or a hundred Excelsior Jeremy Large. <laughs> so we've touched on some of this already, but I think something that is important to stress, because this is absolutely true, is that when Morrison was brought on to relaunch the whole line because Claremont's return for Revolution was a failure, they gave basically as a consolation prize this new title, Extreme X-Men, to Chris Claremont. Right. Because they were taking the flagship away from him after they had finally lured him back to write the X-Men after the whole upset in the early 90s. So they had to sweeten the pot somehow of like, we're breaking some rough news to this legendary creator. So they gave him Extreme X-Men, which I think is actually pretty good, especially when you compare it. Like the three books that are coming out are Morrison, Austin, and Extreme. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah, it's I love pretty, the art. and Austin was so atrocious that Extreme, honestly, was pretty good comics. It also, like, for Claremont, after his return, is one of his better books, I would say. He never quite recaptures the magic of the 70s and 80s, but... Probably the most coherent out of all of them. Yeah, it's not really fair to expect people to play the hits only and, like, not try new things, right? Totally. I completely agree with that. So I liked Extreme Fine, but the fact of the matter is that Morrison's book was the flagship. And mm -hmm. so the characters that Claremont took to Extreme, and he was allowed to take all of his favorite characters with him. He took Rogue, he took Storm, he took Psylocke, he took Kitty for a minute, he took Cannonball. He took a bunch of characters who otherwise had been pretty prominent in the franchise up to that point and put them on this book that was not the flagship. And I think that is actually what killed Gambit's momentum more than anything else. Because suddenly the whole franchise realigned itself around Scott, Emma, Beast, Wolverine. Yeah. Because Gene dies at the end of New X-Men. So then you added Kitty back into the mix because Whedon continues that book and replaces Gene with Kitty on the team. That's really like the major X-Men team for a long time. Gambit, therefore, and Rogue are sort of more ancillary characters. Rogue ends off fucking off to the Avengers for a while. It's right. a weird period for both of them. I think it's only really now in Excalibur, honestly, that they've been reintegrated back into the world of X in like a profound way. Like they did, yeah, hmm. have their solo book, or I guess it's a duo book technically. Mm -hmm. But it feels like they're back in the mix again in a way that they haven't been for a while. And now Rogue obviously is on the main X-Men team and it's a small team. And so they're more in the mix than they have been in a long time. But I do think that a lot of the time what happens is that if you get pulled off the flagship, you fall off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it comes down to like, uh, honestly, like a big, a big part of this is like, what do the writers remember? You know what I mean? Like, and we're getting to the age where like, you know, the, the writers of these teams are. Yeah. People who grew up in the nineties. Correct. Yeah. So, so of course they remember them as, oh, they were together and like, you know, Rogue and Gambit, you can't have one without the other. That's, you know, that type of stuff. Yeah. And they're back in their Jim Lee costumes for a reason, right? Like it's totally much that there's a reason that sync is on the X-Men team. And it's because Jonathan Hickman and Jerry Duggan were young men when Gen X came out and they like that book. You know what I mean? Yeah, like that absolutely. is something that will happen. 
that's the same reason why Kitty Pride ate Jubilee's lunch eventually, even though for a <laughs> while Jubilee, I mean, like, so initially Jubilee eats Kitty Pride's lunch when Kitty goes off to Excalibur, and then Kitty's in Excalibur mm-hmm. for 10 years. But the minute she comes back, Jubilee's screwed because every writer yeah. who gets to write the X-Men grew up with a crush on Kitty Pride in that period. So, right. like, of course <laughs> she's going to be everywhere, right? Totally. Whedon is sort of the ultimate manifestation of that, but I've said my piece on that, and we don't have to get into it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a huge Kitty Pride fan. I like her a lot, but I think Whedon did a number on that character, and then she didn't recover until very recently. So, one, 100%. History, I'm not crazy about. I mean, did you edit X Men Gold? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was there. I was there. Yeah. Um, um, well, you know, God bless. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of people sort of like wish fulfillment type stuff and like yeah. you know if this is every writer gets into this and it's like you know you remember a, a, a certain version of the character and you you bring them back to that or, or whatever mm-hmm. sometimes it takes something as as massive as a entire line-wide shift for someone to be like no I'm, I, we, we have to go in this other direction you know kate now all, the, all that stuff mm-hmm. like and that is that is the only way characters survive so but oh but my point getting back to uh kitty jubilee like it's also when you're when you're really pushing wolverine when you're really pushing the loner rogue with a shitty path mm-hmm. like you also don't need gambit you know what i mean so don't lose track of the idea the fact that like hey the x-men line is like the biggest it's ever been so there's room for all these different corners and all this stuff when you're when you're down to three books and it's like you know that's that i i understand why gambit sort of fell to the wayside right yeah yeah i would agree emily harding writes okay i won't send a three-hour long dissertation she threatened that on twitter (laughs) but i do think gambit's arc both the originally conceived one and the one that is now ultimately canon is interesting and unique in terms of the lines drawn between what makes a villain and what makes a hero and how he always seemed to be held to a different standard for each so it's not necessarily a question, but I would love your thoughts on that. Also, why has it been so hard for writers to consistently nail down his voice, not just the accent and character? I could keep going, but he's oddly my favorite. I will spare you for now. Thanks, XO. Emily. That's amazing. So I think that the voice thing, this is a hot take for me. I only particularly like Gambit when he's written by women. Okay. I like Marjorie Liu's Gambit. I like uh-huh. Kelly Thompson's Gambit. I like Teeny's Gambit. I think that maybe that's because women write him differently from the way that like men who write him as a cool guy wish fulfillment character do. Sure. I do like him actually in the Fabian mini, or I guess it's a maxi, but whatever you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I think that part of it is he's one of those characters that it depends on what you want out of him. Like if you are into him as like a romantic brooding leading man, that's a very different character from if you're into him because he's Zabaki thief who has the cool powers, you know, like it's not, <laughs> always intuitive to to thread the needle there but i think that your point about him being the character who's sort of like is he a hero is he a villain is absolutely true and is why i compared him earlier in the pod to catwoman who i think is sort of dc's equivalent character they're both jewel thieves who become superheroes but like are they heroic like who knows like you know that i do think is what's interesting about him i think the problem that he runs into sometimes with that in X-Men is that the X-Men are obsessed with redeeming villains. They do it all the time. 100%. Rogue famously was a Brotherhood member initially. Mm -hmm. Emma Frost, Magneto, these are characters who evolved over time from a place of really 
wild villainy to now being central heroic X-Men characters. And I think that it's those characters that writers tend to be more excited to explore that with. Like, is Magneto still evil? Is Emma still evil? Because they're characters where the arc is more dramatic over the course of 40 years. Mm -hmm. With Gambit, and also with Rogue, honestly, there's something of an ambivalence about it because they're introduced or quickly become heroic characters. So, like, Rogue has yeah. that arc early on in the 80s. It's like, can anybody trust Rogue? But they get over it pretty quick. Gambit is introduced as a hero who then has a terrible secret. And so I think the reason he's held to kind of a double standard is because he lies to them about it. Yeah. Whereas someone like Emma, they know everything about Emma when they take her in and she wants to atone. That's mm -hmm. all her cards on the table, basically. Like, they know who the White Queen of the Hellfire Club is. They don't feel like they actually know Gambit after they find out that he was Sinister's major domo for a while. <laughs> that, I think, is the difference. But I would like to see more of this stuff teased out. I think, honestly, that Teeny is going to maybe do fun stuff with this because Otherworld is a really interesting place to have a character like that. I can't wait to see him interacting with Jim Jaspers in the Crooked Market. Like, stuff like that, I imagine, is going to be really fun. So I'm hopeful that that is something we'll see more of as his adventures in other worlds continue. I also liked that in X-Men 2, of the Duggan X-Men, just recently, Rogue goes downstairs and finds him playing poker with the Thing and Black Cat and the Rhino, yeah. Which are like, apart from Thing, who's like a pretty straightforward hero, but is like a rough and tumble guy, Black Cat and the Rhino are also characters, introduces villains who then became heroes, but then the Rhino's usually just a villain. Like, right. He's riding that line, and Rogue is like, you cannot have these people in the treehouse playing <laughs> poker. This is a public space. The humans will see. We're trying to do PR here, Remy. She gives him a full Remy Etienne LeBeau, which is how you know that a Southern woman is pissed off. <laughs> So yeah, I like it. I'd like to see more of it. I think that it is probably the most interesting thing about the character is the way that he navigates through those zones. But the problem is like when you do lean into it, it tends to be more like Thieves Guild stuff. And I just never have felt especially drawn to that personally. But I mean, he and Sinister should talk. They're on Krakoa. 100%. That would, that would, be, that would, that would be worthy of another you know, Gambit mini for sure. Them, Let him them do a Hellion's guest spot. Yeah, because you true. know Zeb would write that in a funny way. Yeah, I, I, yeah. And Teeny has Sinister and Jamie Braddock plotting together occasionally, so you could have Sinister pop up in Excalibur. Like those are characters. I mean, as Betsy and Conan have shown, I think Excalibur and Hellions lend themselves well to characters sort of hopping between the books on occasion. So I would like to see Sinister and Gambit interact more. I think that would be fun. That would be fun. Manuel Munoz writes, Hey, Connor, an esteemed guest. Hope everything is going great. Greetings from Ecuador. I have a question about Gambit, considering how Connor has said he's very gambivalent. I found over time, since Mike Carey's run, that he's been very charming in how he's portrayed as being respectful for Rogue's feelings, about how she wanted to take time apart, how he respected her decision to be with Magneto and such. It seems to me that he has this reputation of being a ladies' man, perhaps even a chauvinist, but that in fact he has a great deal of respect for women and is devoted to Rogue. So on that subject, do you think this is a misconstrued image of him, or that he was in fact a womanizer that has only now settled down for her? At the current time, is Gambit the best superhero husband in the Marvel Universe? <laughs> Cypher has entered the chat. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that solo run with James Asmus and Clay Mann? How cool would it have been if Mann had finished it? Because Gambit looked super hot in every issue. But also, remember in issue two or three that Gambit was ready to run over that girl that betrayed him? I guess I said earlier that Gambit respects women. So is that a cool scene or not? 
I love Gambit and Rogue. They're a fun, loving, sexy couple that have action adventure, but also talk about their feelings and problems. Hope the episode is great. Manuel. Well, thank you for writing in. Yeah. I agree that Gambit looks super hot when Clay Man drew him. Um, I forgot about that time he was going to run over that girl. You know, here's my thing. Yeah. I think yeah. that Gambit is an equal opportunity. If you fuck me over, I will fight you kind of person, which is why it's great that he has this mysterious history with Joanna Cargill, because can you imagine them throwing down? That would be so funny to read. Like, sure. They are both so headstrong and violence is not a last resort for them. Let's say. Right. I, agree with you that gambit is now a pretty respectful guy but yeah i think the whole point is that rogue reformed him over the course of the 90s and he absolutely was a bad boy ladies man that's why Sabretooth is like let me tell you about a girl he let die who was in love with him and then right finding, finding out about his ex-wife and yeah we get belladonna arriving being like i am gambit's wife whore like she doesn't say it that way but that's kind <laughs> of the, you know that's kind of the implication yeah his wife you know so that i think is real and is a thing about the character that is real but i do think that over time it got reframed and reshaped because he grew as a character so yeah it's now not the way i would describe the character but i think it was accurate at the time yeah, I think I think it definitely it tracked, but it's you know it's what we're talking about this sort of like character drift that where where people become you know like more more normal and less uh, you know over the top by like hanging out constantly and and you know being at schools and stuff. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. a lot of the questions seem to deal or like people are like very concerned with like how do how does he come back into the center right like how does he yeah like be, get more attention again and it's like i feel like it's not like he's hurting for attention he had a, you know we, we've listed all the times he's shown up in the past you know five years but i think it really comes to like we need we need like a the gambit super fan person you know what i mean like somebody with like the vision yeah who has something to say about this guy in a way that like we haven't yet really you know uh-huh kelly and teeny doing a great job all that but like i think it's in relation to the rogue of it all you know and less about like here's my gambit treatise you know teeny actually is a big gambit fan so i am excited to see what happens next for him because i know that sure, yeah. jerry suggested moving rogue to the X-Men, Teeny was like, great, great idea. That will let Gambit have some independent page time. I have a lot of ideas. So I'm awesome. excited to see where that's going to go. I think, again, I mentioned that like I like how women write this character. I think Marjorie Liu also wrote a really great Gambit and clearly was someone yeah. with like, a lot of affection for the character. But that run is really short, you know, all told. It's Definitely. like 20 issues, I want to say. Sounds right. William Ellis writes, Hello, Connor and valued guest. Thank you so much for the pod. It has made me a consistent comic reader for the first time in my life. Wow. I'm reading all but two of the current titles in the X line and I'm loving every second of it. Now, on to Gambit. The two panels of Remy comforting Julio about the loss of Apocalypse and Teeny Howard's Excalibur 16 have left a set of intertwined questions in my head. Do Julio and Gambit fuck? Or does Julio just give Gambit quick head and then cry about it later? If they do fuck, does Rogue like to watch? Thanks, Will. This is a great question. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. Um, I think that... No, they don't fuck, but I do think that Gambit is Julio's type because Shatterstar is similarly kind of like a yeah. devil-may-care kind of guy sometimes, especially once Peter David got a hold of him. Yeah. 
I think that Julio is definitely like into Gambit, but I also think that Gambit is not like outside of Star, who I think is just like a unique case because he's like Richter's soulmate and they basically grew up together on X-Force and all of that. Right. Richter seems to have mostly like a daddy issues thing going on and Gambit is older than him, but I think that he's more drawn to like bad dads like Apocalypse, <laughs> frankly. Like I think that, that that was such a crazy subplot when I first encountered it and I was like, what is this? And then the more issues that came out, the more I was like, no, this makes perfect sense actually especially after doing the Richter episode of this podcast, where I'm just like, yeah, this is also like basically his dynamic with Cable. Like he's obsessed with fighting with dad, but like also like if dad wanted to kiss me, that would be fine because my actual dad was a criminal who died when I was a kid and I'm really upset about it. Yeah. You know, so that makes sense to me. But I love these ideas and I would love to subscribe to your newsletter. You could start, <laughs> there's various services that you could, you know, start churning yeah. out this content on. I would love to read more of your thoughts. I, I think, I think, you know, and this was something I was like super worried about actually when, when the changeover was coming to, to them getting married, he's, he's, he's like, he's very much a wife guy. You know what I mean? Like he, mm -hmm. he puts her on a pedestal and you know, I don't know. I like, I guess like, it's not like, it's not like there's a ton, a ton you know, tons of that relationship in comics. So it's like having it is, is kind of is, is novel uh, to some degree, but like, Yes, this, that is, uh, you know, some somewhere as new ground for for Gambit, I think for sure. Yeah. So yeah, so he would not uh, be stepping out, which is sort of unfortunate. That, you know, based on the you know Krakow era, where anything can happen, it sort of closes off stuff. But you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. I mean, this is the same problem I have with North Star. In Gambit's case, he's lucky enough that his relationship with Rogue is a relationship people care about and Rogue is a character people care about yeah. often more than they care about him, which that part is a bit of a detriment to him at times. But overall, they're a pair that people care about. And so I think them being married is okay. With North Star, I use him as my example because like that character, Kyle, is introduced purely to do that plot. Totally. There's no real build to their relationship. There's no reason for a reader to care about Kyle, particularly. Like, there's nothing offensive about him. He's just not yeah. really anything. And it precludes Northstar then from participating in half of superhero comics, which is soap opera romance plot. Right. I think that's hurt Northstar as a character. In Gambit's case, I think that the evolution of the character was such that he already was like a wife guy for Rogue like 15 years before they actually got married. So there wasn't really, in my opinion, another direction to take the character that would have made him more popular because I don't think breaking up him and Rogue would have improved the character's stock. No. I think that they both became A-list characters in part because of their relationship. Because if you look at the 80s material, Rogue is a lot of fun, but she's very much a supporting character. You know, that book is about Storm and Kitty and Wolverine more than it's about anybody else. Even in like the Outback era, Betsy really gets more focus than Rogue does, except for the Genosha story, which is very Rogue heavy. Mm-hmm. They became a super couple in that soap opera way. Yeah. And so splitting them up never really works. I liked that Mike Carey did it so that they could grow apart a little bit. But I think otherwise, it's probably best to let them stay together. Uh, yeah, th this this is there was nowhere else to go with it. And the only way through really is to add, so, you know, a, tons of import basically to their relationship for, you know, for anything 
to happen in the future. Totally. This is funny. <laughs> <laughs> Troy Reader writes, Hello, Connor and company. Insert obligatory longtime listener, first-time caller statement here. So I was absolutely ludicrously in love with Remy when he first appeared, to the point of signing all my friends' yearbooks, Gambit, my junior and senior years of high school. Aww. But I fell off reading X books shortly after Claremont's departure and have jumped back on board with Hoxpox. Wow, you were gone for a while. Welcome back. I'm loving what Teeny is doing with Gambit in Excalibur. I'm now going back to fill in the massive blanks in my mutant reading history and just arrived at the age of apocalypse. This leads to my question. What is wrong with Gambit in this alternate world? He's pining <laughs> after Rogue and being so ludicrously unaware of the obvious situation between her and Magneto just feels like the writer's room collectively agreed, hey, let's make AOA Gambit the absolute dumbest mutant left on the face of the earth and see what happens. Did I miss an issue that explained in this timeline Remy grew up eating a lot of lead paint chips or something? Anyway, thank you for the podcast and for the wonderfully welcoming community surrounding it and I can't wait to hear upcoming episodes on my absolutely shameful 90s favorites Troy this is a very funny question I don't really cover AOA on this show because even though it's the most famous alternate universe I think once you open well that and ultimate I guess once you open the alternate universe floodgates you really yeah. start to it becomes way too massive you gotta draw the line somewhere for sure yeah AOA Gambit though is fun I love that book externals but here's the thing about AOA. The point of AOA is that this world fucking sucks and everyone is kind of their worst possible self, right? Yeah. Of course, Gambit is like kind of a loser in this world because it's a shit world and they're all kind of reacting to it by being kind of shitty themselves. The point of the AOA storyline is to make us care about AOA, Rogue, and Magneto, which I think we do, but also simultaneously to be thinking the whole time, this is so wrong, Rogue is supposed to be with Gambit. Yes. So he's kind of like pointing to the WrestleMania sign, right? Like he's right. saying to you, like, <laughs> we're going to get back together. Don't worry about it. You know, like, yeah. just wait a couple months. I think that works. Mm -hmm. But I do get why it would be jarring if you're like, why is he such a weird sad sack in this world and so oblivious? Because here's the thing. It's just a different guy. And much like having Cyclops and Havoc working for Mr. Sinister as his loyal enforcers, like a lot of yeah. people in this dystopian world grew up in different circumstances, I think is the takeaway we're supposed <laughs> to have. Totally. But you know what's working? That red scarf. I think that red scarf made the jump, uh, or, or should make the jump rather, to uh, you know, be in the in the um, in the costume rotation on Krakoa. Yeah, no, I agree. Gripster asks, so many heroes have an arch nemesis that is just as famous as them. What do you think about expanding Gambit's own solo rogues gallery to include more long-term villains outside of things like Sinister or the New Sun? We didn't even talk about the New Sun. <laughs> Don't worry about the new sun. I'm sure I covered it in the character file, which I'm recording after this. Sorry, I have to pull the curtain back a little bit, but I haven't written it yet. Anyway, he has a couple that are out there a little bit. Like, Belladonna and Kandra are, like, very specifically Gambit villains. Mm -hmm. Belladonna, though, is a character that I just don't quite think has ever really worked. I'm open to the idea of finding a way to make her work, but I'm just not sure they ever have. And Kandra, obviously, is out of commission at the moment. I think that it is high past time for Gambit to have a rival character in that way. And I think now would be a great time to give him one because the opportunities for introducing new characters in other worlds are so vast. You know, he's in a location where you can absolutely do that. And they've created so many fun, compelling new characters recently that I think that could be an option. 
I'm not sure that there's anybody in his like past rogues gallery outside of Mr. Sinister that I really want them to explore, especially in depth. But that's just my take. What are your thoughts, Chris? I totally agree, which is which is not uh, you know that interesting. But I think there's something to maybe like his dad, you know, like father stuff, orphan stuff. Like I think that has a place. Like I don't know, but. But in terms of like a, a an amazing like foil person, like mm-hmm. you're right. Like this is the best time to, to create a new character. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is when you should do it. I'm sure there's something you could pull out of Arthurian legends that would be a real <laughs> pain in the ass for Gambit. Totally. Um, and I trust this crew to like come up with something that is like very, very on point for, for Gambit. Me too. Yeah. Absolutely. Eleanor Razor, Rasor? <laughs> hope I got it right. Sorry, Eleanor. Thank you for writing in. Hi, Connor and guest. First time writing into the podcast, and I just wanted to say I really love listening to it, and it's one of the reasons I've gotten back into X-Men comics. I know you're a bit gambivalent toward this character, but I'm still excited for your episode on him because I think he's fun with the right writer. My question is, in my opinion, Gambit can be read pretty firmly as bisexual and has been flirtatious towards other men in a lot of comics I've read. Do you think Marvel will ever do anything with that subtext now that he's married to Rogue and their relationship is on for the foreseeable future? Not that I'm unhappy about the wedding. Also, a very important question, what do you think of Gambit's cats? Thanks, and keep up the good work, Eleanor. (laughs) The cats are great. No yeah. notes. Pro cat. More cats, Pro please. Cat. More cat content. So we mentioned this earlier, but I wanted to read this because, yeah, there are moments where he has actually like done it on page. There's a really sexy moment. I forget what the issue is, but I'll find it and put it on Twitter at some point where he and Dokken are like having a fight and it's not even subtextual. Like Gambit's basically like, oh, you want to fuck me, huh? You into <laughs> me, yes? We? <laughs> It's not ambiguous, and it feels like Gambit might be down in that scene. As I've mentioned, my understanding is that James Asmus tried to do that in the Gambit solo, and I think that other writers have also sort of tried to put that on the page. I don't know if they ever will. I do think, again, as I've said, he's kind of a safe character to do it with. Sure. In, you know, air quotes, because, yeah, he is in a monogamous relationship with a woman, so they wouldn't have to explore it. It could just be like an ex or something. That also, though, as I said in the Cannibal episode, makes him a little bit, to me, one of the less appealing characters to do it with because you're only going to get so many, right? Like, there's only so many characters that are going to be like, oh, I'm queer, by the way, on page. And so I tend to prefer it to be characters who then can have romance plots. Yeah. But he's one, if you're going to do it with anybody where they're like spoken for and we're not going to see them date men on the page, that is one where I would dig it. I think Gambit has always kind of been written that way. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be a fun development for the character. Also, frankly, I think Rogue would be into it. (laughs) Rogue is an ally. Rogue went to that dinner with Bobby's parents to like be his beard. She gets it. She's down with the fag. She's like, she's good. She's in the clubs. She knows. She shops at Bloomingdale's. <laughs> so yeah, I yeah. think that could be fun. I think I I I believe I totally think Rogue would be fine. Like they could have threesomes with people. It would yeah. be fun. In this in this era, like this this would this is like Especially on Krakoa, yeah. yeah this is the, <laughs> this is this is the flavor that you can do. Will it ever happen? Maybe, probably. I think someday. I think there's enough drift over time that we could, we, you can feel like it may not be when we want it to happen. You know what I mean? Like it may right. not be while we're young right. and, and virile. <laughs> yeah. 
we might be, you know, old and gray, like getting comics downloaded exactly. to our head and, and, you know, we'll, oh, I remember that, you know, that type of thing, because, you know, we like we got the kitty moment uh, in the tattoo parlor, like. Yeah, and we're still waiting for more of that, which I'm hoping we'll get soon. But that's the thing is, like, that should have happened with Kitty back in Mechanics. Like, totally. Sometimes it takes longer for us to get there. I mean, I was saying on a recent episode when we were talking about trans representation in this franchise and the lack thereof, you know, I, like many, many people, am into the idea of Emma Frost potentially being someone who you would reveal has always been a trans woman and that she just didn't talk about it on the page. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of stuff. The only real contradiction is that, like, she had Ova to make the cuckoos, but there's a lot of ways you could, they just have to be cloned from her cells. It doesn't have to be egg cells. Like, you can just hand wave that. Otherwise, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's resonant in her history, in her approach to gender. I think particularly in the way that Grant Morrison reimagined the character, and Grant Morrison obviously is non-binary themselves. So there's a lot to work with there. I said on this episode, I was like, and I said this also in my uh, interview on Bitches on Comics with Sarah Sentry and S.E. Flinor, where we were talking about this, because they're very invested, particularly S.E. in that headcanon. I was saying, like, I would love for that to happen. And if it does happen, I will probably be 75 years old. But I will throw a ticker tape parade because I would love that. But, yeah, unfortunately, I do think that big two comics are going to be a little bit behind the curve of social acceptance. Sure. Because any corporate product is going to be. Any product where the writers and artists, and this is not limited to comics. This is also true of particularly network television, Mm -hmm. of any number of things. If you need a sales team of guys in suits who are not artists to sign off on something, you're going to run into a situation where risk aversion means that the approach to social progress is conservative, is slower. I don't mean conservative politically. I mean, like, they take their time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's changing. I mean, I keep saying this, but, like, this is the gayest fucking era ever in Mm -hmm. the X-Men in terms of what's allowed to be on the page. So I have hope that things are changing and that things are moving. We have queer writers in the office, multiple queer writers in the office. That is super cool. I just think we should stay tuned because I am confident that everybody in that office is doing everything they can to make this stuff happen on whatever timetable it's going to happen yeah last question butch mappa asks what your favorite gambit story is that you worked on as an editor (laughs) um that's funny uh so yeah butch butch is a is a really fantastic artist doing stuff all over the place thank you for writing in Butch. thank you for writing in and and everyone check out his his art uh you know wherever you can Let's see. Favorite. See, the, I, I had the unfortunate, uh, the the misfortune, unfor- unfortunate events of being in a sort of like down gambit time. You know what I mean? What are your feelings on the on the gambit beanie? On the what? Gambit's beanie. He had like a beanie for like a, a, a chunk of time. Like a hat? I don't even. Yeah, like this. a beanie, like a hat, like yeah. Um, <laughs> I've blocked this out entirely. This is the thing. I don't like. I'm not really keeping tabs on Gambit. He's just like not a character I'm ever super following closely. This is what I'm saying. Like I worked on Gambit when he had a beanie and it's like, you know, it's, it's a very skippable era. You know what I mean? That people, people aren't, you know, not, it's not important to Gambit basically. So I don't, I don't have one, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And that's sad. That's unfortunate, but you know. Yeah. Is there any Gambit moment you got to edit that you enjoyed? Just something that you can think of off the top of your head? <laughs> um, 
not really like Mr. Mr. and Mrs. X was something different finally. Yeah, I mean that was it was a nice spotlight for them. No, I'm sorry. I was I was on Rogan Gambit, not Mr. and Mrs. The X. prelude. Yeah, it. the pre prelude to it all. That was fun. Yeah. Kelly did a really great job and and uh Perry drew some really sexy stuff uh, in that one so mm-hmm. absolutely yeah this wasn't until mr and mrs x but i always enjoy when cerise gets to pop up mm. i'm an excalibur boy so yeah. whenever one of those weird alan davis characters shows up i'm like yes put that right in my eyeballs <laughs> <laughs> so that's why i was so excited when this big relaunch happened and i loved house of x powers of 10 and then they announced a new excalibur starring betsy as captain britain and that's how I, i'm like i loved the book that's how i met teeny and we ended up working together oh wow yeah i like read the first couple issues and i was just like yes what are you working on do you have any prose ideas like so mm-hmm. that's how it all came together and we've become really really good friends yeah that's awesome it's nice when you work with people and also enjoy socializing with them of course it's not always the relationship you want with everybody you work with but it's always nice well chris do you have anything else you want to say about Gambit before we talk a little bit about what you're working on at the moment. I guess my my last word on Gambit would be uh would be like no words. Like it's just just look at him. Like as long as as long as the the art is working and you have a a um a, you know an artist bringing something uh you know to the table and and really embracing it like he's definitely a character that you know i think writers would do well like like mark marcus does as an amazing artist to lean on your artists and let them let them make gambit work a bit you know what i mean because his power is so visual and striking and beautiful on the page that you yeah. really should just let people go nuts with it. And I, that's why, like, one of the best Gambit moments in years, I truly do think, is, like, in that Excalibur issue when he supercharges the train. And you're like, oh, my that God, I cool. forgot he could fucking do that. Yeah. Because he's always, like, tossing his cards around. And you forget that he can charge whatever the hell he wants if he puts mm-hmm. his mind to it. Yeah. Oh, and also, like, basketball. Like, very few characters are like, he's always playing basketball. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, as opposed to the baseball that they're all always playing. Yeah, as opposed to the baseball thing, totally. Okay, so actually, now I'm thinking about it, he and Megan should play basketball, because iconically, in an early issue of Excalibur, right after the Inferno, Mm -hmm. Megan is by herself wandering through New York and accidentally... Like her powers are out of control, so she keeps sort of subconsciously shape shifting to look like whoever is around her. Mm-hmm. And this is a slightly controversial issue because she ends up shifting race a couple times. There's a really incredible scene where she like sees a bunch of black guys playing basketball and sort of walks up as suddenly this beautiful black woman uh-huh. and is like incredible at basketball because she can fucking fly. And they're like, Are you in the WNBA? Like, what's your deal? <laughs> She's so happy and loves it so much and has so much fun that when Brian finds her and they get in the taxi together to go back to the hotel, she doesn't shift back into her regular form that's like a white-looking blonde lady. And he's like, Megan, what's going on with you? Like, those aren't your features, he says in like a very diplomatic kind of way. And she looks... And she looks at her reflection in the mirror and she says, well, Brian, it's my face, so these must be my features, which is as opposed to other race-changing storylines in the X-Men that I think are pretty uh, yikesy, that one I think is actually kind of heartwarming because her point is my form is entirely malleable and I was having a lot of fun with those men. So, you know, I still see myself when I'm looking in the mirror right now. So it's just a nice... Anyway, long digression because I love that character. My friend Khaled was like, I'm going to require a notes up apology from Megan about this issue. And I was like, I do understand that position. But now that they're both in Excalibur together, he should help her rediscover her love of basketball. That would be fantastic. I love that for them. 
Yeah, I love that for them too. And honestly, like, you know, Megan, who was raised by television, fucking loves Gambit because he's like the bad boy from a soap opera. Like, he, he is, <laughs> like, she was raised by EastEnders and Coronation Street. Yeah. Loves Gambit. You know, she loves Gambit. And Brian's probably like looking down from the parapets, like, what's going on down there? <laughs> anyway. Well, thank you, Chris, so much for being my guest. I'd love to give you an opportunity to talk about the project that you're crowdfunding at the moment and anything else that you would like to plug. Sure. Uh, yeah. I, let me just say, like, it is a really amazing opportunity to be here and talk with you because, I've, you know, I, I told you off, off air, but like, I listen to the show all the time. So it is, it's like talking to the friends that you hear in your head all the time. Anyway, so. <laughs> well, thank you. It's nice to meet you. And I'm excited to get a drink when I'm out in LA in September. Yes, please, please do. What can I say? Okay, Corner Man. So we, uh, there's this new platform out there called Zoop, which is a crowdfunding platform that is somewhere between a publisher and a, uh, you know, and your, you know, Kickstarter, Indiegogo's, whatever. But what they allow creators to do is basically run their campaign with a little help with like some training wheels on. So um, myself uh, and, and Ray Anthony Height, my co-creator, co-writer. Oh, very cool. Co-everything. I missed that detail. We used to work together on Moon Girl Devil Dinosaur, which is a book I edited for like almost 50 issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now we're getting to step out and, you know, we're both extremely pulled in a lot of different directions, uh, working on tons of different things. So like, it would not be feasible for us to do a crowdfunding campaign now without help. And that's where Zoop came in and Zoop is making it possible for us to, to make this happen. But the other component is folks out there need to help, uh, you know, jump in too as well, right? Because that's, that's the whole crowdfund. Right. So, you need a crowd to crowdfund, right? Absolutely. So. We need a crowd. So here's what I'd, I'd say to everybody listening. This is a superhero adjacent and it's kind of interesting that we're getting to talk about this during the lead up to Shang-Chi right because now it's sort of in the forefront of everyone's mind this sort of mix of superhero and martial arts mm -hmm. uh, adventure storytelling but that's what the conceit of Corner Man is so uh, Corner Man exists in a world where there are superheroes but there's a guy who trains the superheroes and it's like where where do you you know, just because you shoot heat vision or, or whatever out of your eyes, like you can't really throw a punch. That's the whole concept of the danger room, right? Like mm -hmm. every once in a while, people get into or, you know, writers get into the idea of like, how, how are they actually good at this stuff, right? Yeah. So Cornerman is about Jason Drexler, who is a superhero trainer. He's a, uh, you know, world-class martial artist, all that. And then the super team that he trained, like, you know, the Avengers, the Just Justice League, whatever this world's version of that is. The pastiche of that. C correct, yeah. They they get captured, and then the government's like, hey, we need you to step out from, you know, the, the shadows of the gym and, like, go out there and get them. And he was a guy that always wanted to keep playing the background, keep, you know, supporting in other ways other than actually doing it. And then we, we get into his younger sister, who's a character, uh, you know, he, did, he didn't want to get into this life, and now she's in the life. We get into uh, a younger hero, a government agent hero called uh, Boson, who is, is kind of bumbling. Like, it's, it's a action-adventure, superhero, martial arts mashup thing that is totally brand new, creating this from the ground up. And, you know, we talked earlier about Substack and, like, being able to, you know, put the power back in creators' hands. Like, that is something that I'm, like, very happy that uh, we're able to partner with uh, Zupon. 
because it is like the best time to like, you know, jump out and try, try something new. Listen, I started a podcast and it's going pretty well. So yeah, it's, <laughs> I this is the it's moment. very well, actually. It's, it's you know, 50 I like episodes to think so. not, uh, you know, nothing to see that. Great job. I know. This is 49. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty amazing. So yeah, so, you know, that's where we're at. You can see some of the art on uh, zoop.com slash C slash cornerman. Uh, you can see a lot of race concept art. If you like Shang-Chi, if you like uh, manga, if you like superheroes, like check it out. It's a single issue, kicks off the whole franchise, like gives you a sense of the world. And, you know, we're going to see what happens with it after that. But it is something that we're both like very excited about and, and hoping that, you know, because when it, when we landed on this idea, we were like, whoa, there's something here, a little, a little electri- electricity to, uh, you know, flew through our fingers. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully you guys feel the same out there when uh, when you read more about it. And that is Zoop, spelled Z as in Zaladane, O as in Orphan Maker, <laughs> O as in Orphan Maker, P as in Predator X. So that's Z-O-O-P. Chris, why don't you tell listeners where they can follow you online, on social media or whatever? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Twitter, although I, I'm less and less there. Yeah, tell me about it. I don't think anybody should be there anymore, myself included. It's a nightmare. Yeah, but like, you know, if you, <laughs> if you throw me a message, I'll definitely, you know, I'll see it. I'll, you know, get out, you know, within a couple of days, I should, yeah. I should see it. So don't, don't be alarmed. Like, oh, he's ignoring me. Like, so feel free, you know, at Chris Robinson is, is, is a place for that. Um, for those people who are not on Twitter, because guess what? Like Twitter is not everybody in the whole world. You can go to my website, crab.info. And then let's see, what else? Oh, you can also like keep an eye out on uh, the Tapas app, which is a web comics app mm-hmm. that I'm putting together a big line of creator-owned comics for that uh, we're not quite ready to announce, but, you know, give it. In the next few months, you'll you'll be hearing about that. But there's tons of free and um, for, you know, small sums comics there that are totally brand new. Definitely, you know, not your average superhero stories uh, type stuff. Mm-hmm. Like people, people really, really pushing the medium in different, uh, different ways that I'm very excited to be part of. My agency has worked with Tapas in my day job. And oh, yeah? It's been a great company to work with. Yeah, That's awesome. So I recommend you can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus a link to the Cerebro fan Discord server, the Cerebro merch store, and the Patreon at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. You can support Cerebro on Patreon at Patreon.com slash CerebroCast. For just $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier, you will receive two special secret files bonus episodes each month. There are some fun new ones up now, including a deep dive on Victoria Montesi, Marvel's first lesbian character, with Cerebro's official lesbian correspondent, Sarah Century, and other fun content that I hope you will enjoy. Please do join us in the Discord server. It's a lot of fun, but don't bring any bad vibes. You can send your questions to Cerebrocast at gmail.com. I'm recording a bunch in advance right now because my schedule has gotten more complicated as things have shifted in the pandemic. My suggestion would be to follow the Twitter account if you want to make sure that you don't miss any opportunities to send questions in or to be in the Discord server where I always give everybody a note like here's the person I'm taking questions about right now. Right now, if you have any really pressing thoughts on cable, send those in. 
but I've already got a whole lot of questions, so no promises. Because guess what? Guess who's really fucking confusing? Cable is really fucking confusing. Thanks again, as always, for your support. Thank you for listening. And until next time, everybody, bye. See ya. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is... X-Men.